This week, the DEA is on the hunt for El Chapo, the world's most dangerous drug trafficker, and the final showdown results in a deadly firefight that ends, once and for all, his days on the run. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Welcome back, everybody, to episode nine, episodio de nueve, as they say in Espanol, and mi Espanol is perfecto, we have decided that, and I am here. Nobody li- says that. Yes, they do. <laughs> literally here. I am Morgan Wright, literally here. I am El Jefe, literally here with Little Jefe, my partner in crime. <laughs> yeah, this is Steve Murphy, and I got a different name for that Little Jefe you're talking about. Yeah, we're getting, speaking of Little, we're talking about El Chapo this week, so we'll get into that in just a minute, but before we do, folks... Thank you so much. Uh, we are starting to see the downloads increase. Your five-star reviews on Apple are definitely helping us. So, hey, let's just do a little housekeeping before we get into this. Again, we say uh, go over, hit that little purple icon like James says. Give us a five-star review. It really helps us get up in the rankings, get discovered, and it really helps us uh, continue to bring you even more and better content. Also, head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. As we found out last week, Steve, when we posted those videos of Mike Neal and people could actually see the car stop, the officers being shot, and then his shootout, I'm telling you, that was some of the most intense, like you said, 17 seconds of hell. So you find out everything on our website over there. Yes, sir. Come and check us out. Come and check us out. Hey, and guess what? As promised, as I surprised Murph with, and we said we were going to launch Patreon, we have launched Patreon. No, I did it. Doesn't matter. Why we? There's no I and we. I pressed the button that said launch. Now, you might have recorded 12 episodes, but by God, I pressed the button that said launch. That's right. That's right. I am in charge here. No. Hey, look, folks, we did. We got the Patreon channel launched. We already had an overwhelming response to it. We want to thank you guys. So head on over to Patreon. We've got three levels. We've got Evil is Coming. We've got War, or, uh, Guardian of the Realm and Warden of the Throne. We have got so much great stuff that we're putting into each of these levels. And Steve, we've already over-delivered. I mean, we are already delivering more than what people are paying for. And one of the things we talked about where a lot of the episodes, you sat down, put together some episodes, and said, here's what we got coming next. We got really a lot of good stuff coming out on Patreon, don't we? Oh, my gosh. It's unbelievable. And uh, 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 What's your name again? Morgan and I were looking at, uh, oh, Little Heffy, that's it. El Heffy Pequeño. Um, We were looking at our list of potential interviews down the road over the next year, and we're going to knock your socks off. I mean, you think that that what you've heard so far is is good, and it is. It's great content, but we've just got more and more and more. And now our friends in the field are starting to call in and say, hey, man, your podcast is great. What about this? What about that? And it just keeps getting better and better. So you guys are in for a great treat over the next 18 years as we keep this going. (laughs) Yeah, Murph will be retired in two when he moves down to Florida. By the (laughs) way. We'll we'll talk about that in a minute. But anyway, going on over to patreon.com slash game of crimes, patreon.com slash game of crimes. Sign up for the day. Not only will you have our eternal gratitude, you'll also start getting some fabulous content that is now starting to be produced each and every month, right? Absolutely. If I can figure out how to do it, we get enough subscribers. We'll even issue you a mute button so you can mute Morgan whenever you want to. We told you that's the hundred dollar level, and I don't have that posted <laughs> yet. So that might be the thousand dollar level. Yeah, and if you feel just like donating because you want to just help us out, head on over to PayPal.com. Use our email, Game of Crimes Podcast at Gmail.com, or PayPal.me/slash Game of Crimes. 
whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you even more exciting content. Now, quick disclaimer, this is a show about crime. We had some people, we had a couple comments, and I want to address a couple of these. They think we're just total uh, cops and anti-everything else. Nothing could be further from the truth. I will tell you, Steve, though, we did have one of our five-star reviews. This had to be a James and Jimmy review from somebody. They said we were stoner friendly. Woohoo! I, I don't know why. But hey, no, we are. Look, we're just here to tell stories. We're not taking sides. We just want to tell stories and let you guys have a lot of fun and hear, just like we did with Mike Neal, great things, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that the stoner thing, now, yeah, I mean, I'll be the first to tell you, I never tried illegal narcotics. I've never smoked weed, none of that stuff. I don't know about these troopers, though, you know, because they do a lot of interdiction stuff on the highway, and I'm not sure how their testing methods are. Far more rigorous than DEA. Far more <laughs> rigorous than DEA. Uh, that explains a lot about you. Anyway, but anyway, quick disclaimer, this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. But we always take the story seriously, but... Never ourselves. That's why we're having some fun. That's right. So, hey, before we get into Game of Crimes, Murph, guess what time it is? Oh, Lord. Here we, I'm going to get this wrong again this week. <laughs> it's time for... Small Town, small town Police Town Faster Murph Okay, I got the person to hate. And actually, we're getting a lot more of you folks out there. I got to give a shout out. Dan Nelson. He's at Dan Reed, R-E-I-D Nelson, at Dan Reed Nelson on Twitter. He sent us this. I'm just going to read you the headline first. Man charged with molesting alligator after alarming image circles the Internet. <laughs> Oh, so, oh, let's talk oh, no, about no. that. Hey, man, a photo posted to Facebook by South Carolina's Fripp Island Golf and Beach Resort is drawing attention because of what it depicts. In the picture, one man, crouch, one man crouches near the ground and appears to draw a large alligator out of a body of water by its tail. Meanwhile, another person stands in the background taking a photo. So, Steve, this is the most this is the most statement of the obvious I've ever heard. The resort made a statement. Fripp Island would like to remind all of our residents, guests, and visitors that Fripp is a wildlife habitat. Harassment, enticement, or feeding of wildlife is both illegal and dangerous. We're sharing this incident in hopes that the violators will be found and not to encourage this kind of behavior. Let me give you, you know what the solution to that is? <laughs> Show a picture of the guy after the alligator rips his arm off. That will be the best thing. Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. What a you know was it a, was it an animal control guy or is it just some idiot out there? That no, some some idiot out there that just uh, uh, he looked like he was in a long sleeve shirt and pants and dragged the alligator out of a pond. For what reason? Got no idea. But anyway. Oh man. Hey, guess what? We we also not only do we have that, Steve. We also had another fan, uh, Olivia Hudson, shared a post from the Game of Crimes fan page. If you guys haven't checked it out, go to the Game of Crimes fan page, find it, answer a couple quick questions, get in there. Anyway. Hey, this actually comes out of Richland, Washington. Now, it's kind of a small town, but I thought it was really funny. So the uh, police department there posted a notice that said, hey, we're looking for Anthony Akers. He's wanted for failure to comply. Guess what Anthony Akers did? He replied on Facebook. He goes, <laughs> hey, calm down. I'm going to turn myself in. Now, this gets into a very interesting dialogue. I'm going to shorten it up quite a bit. But basically, the police department said, hey, we haven't seen you yet. Our hours are Monday through Friday. So guess what? He did still didn't show up. And so they go, oh. Morose Monday. Anthony, is it us? We wanted to reach out to you as you wanted. You replied and said you were even going to turn yourself in. Now, Anthony re has a hilarious response. He says, Dear RPD, it's not you. It's me. I obviously have commitment issues. I apologize for standing you up. He says, I will make it down. And guess what? His final picture is he does show up on time, takes a selfie of himself. 
turning himself in because he had about a month to do, so he wanted to get his affairs in order. So I thought that was... (laughs) He's got a lot more than commitment issues, let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. What fun. Hey, here's one that comes from... uh, Don't know exactly where it is, but um, you'll get this. I think this happened to you. A woman reported Thursday that someone broke into her home in the 1200 block of Sumner Street and switched out hardware in her computer with identical hardware that doesn't work. There are no leads. I I guarantee you that wasn't me. I'm I'm happy to be able to log on the computer so I can do this podcast. That's about the extent of my technical capabilities. Uh, Who reports that stuff? Well, here is one I never had in all my years happen to me, and this is the first time I've ever heard it. A man eats underwear to defeat the breathalyzer test. What? This is in Canada, eh? I believe it's in Canada. An 18-year-old Stetler man tried to eat his underwear in the hope that the cotton fabric would absorb alcohol before he took a breathalyzer test. The provincial court heard this week. So his name is David Zerflu. Oh, this Uh, this is sick. I bet his breath smelled like shit. Oh, boy. (laughs) Oh, God. So Sorry, everybody. He was arrested. He ate his underwear. uh, But because he didn't blow over the .08 legal limit, the case was dismissed. But the testimony broke up people and Judge David uh, McNaughton's (laughs) provincial court. Uh, And the other thing, too, is they had apparently, they had students in there for uh, uh, William E. Hay Composite High as observers, and they had to be removed by teachers when the testimony (laughs) enlivened the proceedings. Well, did they charge you with indecent exposure? (laughs) Oh, I don't know, man. Who eats their underwear? Oh, my God. I have never heard of that in my entire life. (laughs) Never heard of that. There's there's the first one for Murph and Morgan. All right. Now for the final one, Steve. What year was it? Oh, geez. Here we go. So this is either September 1st, 1903, 1913, or 1923. Okay. Even though this comes out of the call leader in Elwood, Indiana, the story actually originates from Paris. A man cut off the hair of 94 women. Police, Paris police arrest man suffering from strange and peculiar mania. No shit, dude. <laughs> it's searching the flat of a certain Paris cyberite. I believe, I guess that's supposed to be like suburbanite, but they call it cyberite. By name, Lerama Gorg, the police found the hair of no less than 94 women. The whole estimated by a coiffeur to be worth $500 for toupee and postiches, whatever those things are. Lerama Gorg enticed the confiding creatures to his house and having hypnotized them, cut off their hair. His very shaving brushes bristled with what has been described as the capillary attachment of a female scalp. Oh, my, oh my gosh. God. You know what? He'd qualify to be a politician nowadays. That's right, be. yeah. So, Steve, what date was it? September 1st, 1903, 1913, or 1923? Let's go with 03. Wrong. <laughs> of course it's wrong. <laughs> I was probably right, everybody. He just does this to screw with me. You know that, right? Uh, try uh, again. Uh, okay. 23. Wrong again. Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's see. What, what would the other one be? 1913? Uh, even the DEA could figure out this one, yes. <laughs> September 1st, 1913, in the call leader out of Elwood, Indiana. And thus concludes the liturgy for today. Thank God. <laughs> Holy cow. Oh, my God. Well, hey, now that, now that we have sufficiently enticed you, let's get into this. This one is going to be a two-parter, folks. 
This one has been so good. These are Steve's buddies, uh, Abe Perez and Paul Crane. So, Steve, I'm going to tee it up for you and let you tee up what we're about to enjoy over the next two episodes. Great. So, you know, we've all heard different stories about El Chapo Guzman. Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. Uh, and, it, you know, you wonder, what's the real story? Well, this week, you're going to hear it. And that's why it's in two episodes. Paul and Abe were the number one and number two supervisors for DEA in Mexico during Chapo's latest and last capture. I don't think he'll ever escape again now that he's in the United States. And they're going to tell you the, the true story. There's some things in here that are going to curl your toes. Uh, Morgan's been teasing you about uh, when you get a rental car in Mexico, be careful. Oh be my sure God. you get the insurance. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some of the stories they're going to tell you are just outstanding. It's it's. Uh, but then here's the thing. This is the true story. It's not what you might have read in somebody else's books. You know, people are trying to... Uh, take credit for a lot of things they didn't do. Uh, so you're going to hear the true story today and on Thursday as well. It's just we're honored to have Paul and, and Abe. I had the pleasure of working with Paul in Special Operations Division for a couple of years. Uh, Abe, I've met throughout my career, just never had the opportunity to work with him. So uh, this is one of those that's that's rare um, and it's, it's high profile because everybody in the world knows who El Chapo is. like Pablo Escobar. Everybody knows who El Chapo is. Well, and the other thing too is we'll have, so again, what we're going to do this two potter when we get out of part one, just going to keep it short and keep it short getting into part two. But at the end of episode part two of this episode nine, Steve and I are going to have a quick discussion and bring you up to speed on what's going on with El Chapo's wife because she was arrested at the airport at our in our county here, uh, Dulles International Airport. So there are some things to happen. But Steve. Yes, sir. I got to ask you the question. Are you ready to play the biggest game of all, the game of crimes? Hey, everybody, get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Here comes the true story about El Chapo Guzman. Welcome, amigos, amigas. This is going to be a good one. I'm telling you right now, this is going to be a good one because as we've said with uh, JP and Steve before on our other uh, 12-part series, there's people who read the book and then there's people who wrote the book. And we all know Steve can't read. So it must be (laughs) Abe Perez and Paul Crane. Abe and Paul, dudes, welcome, welcome, welcome. Yes, thank sir. You. That's, thank are, you. These are my two good friends, Morgan, and we're just including you. Just I don't know why. Well, it's a lie, Murph. You have no friends. You don't pay for. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they're good with it. I'm good with it. Doesn't matter. <laughs> hey, well, hey guys, w- welcome. I mean, this is going to be fun because we've been doing a lot of research. And look, the other thing too, I think this is going to be fun is there's all sorts of stories and people out there taking credit for things other people do. And it's just good to have you guys on. So what we're going to do is, you know, everybody kind of probably knows by now the way we approach this. We want to talk about you first, your background, how you got into law enforcement. And then we're going to talk, let's set the stage. Let's talk about the Sinaloa cartel. Let's talk about, you know, AFO, whatever it needs, we need to talk to set the stage down there. What was going on at the time? Then we want to talk about what happened, the escape, the second escape of, um, El Chapo Joaquin Guzman. And then we want to talk about what you guys have done afterwards. So, hey, let's get this started off with you, Abe. Um, You know, you weren't originally born in the United States, were you? No, I was actually, uh, I I was raised up in um, Guadalajara, Jalisco, Mexico, to the age of 10. And um, at the age of 10, my parents decided to uh, come back to the U.S. And uh, my mom 
When you say come back, were they here to begin with? Uh, No. um, When I say come back, I said that um, they, uh, my dad would always come back for the, um, uh, during the season of uh, picking either oranges, tomatoes, and other stuff in the farming business. So um, we would, um, they they came back, and um, when I actually turned 10, and we've been here since um, ever since. So, so when they um, when you say they came back, they couldn't find anybody to leave you with, huh? They, they, they were forced <laughs> to bring you with them, huh? That's it. That's it. So um, <laughs> at the age of uh, ten, we were actually uh, <clears throat> I stayed here. I went through um, elementary, went to uh, high school, and then of course uh, graduated um, here at in San Diego, San Diego State University, and um, and then uh, actually I think that one of the things that uh, going through. Um, the um, my career at uh, San Diego State and uh, finishing uh, there, I did a um, started working for Customs, U.S. Customs back then. It wasn't called CBP or part of DHS. It was part of the U.S. Treasury Department. I did three years with them, and then right after that, I graduated. And um, when you I, say you did three years with them, were you talking about while you were in college, you were working yeah. for Customs? Yes, I was. Yes, what I were was. you doing? What were I you was doing? A customs officer there at the uh, border. Port of entry in San Isidro. So oh. I, was actually, I, was, I was actually one of the guys that's waving people uh, through the uh, U.S. border, one of the largest uh, port borders in the world. Had a so, homicide suspect. We tried to get him to turn himself in at the San Isidro port of entry down there, and he waffled about 10 feet from the uh, international line. We were within 10 feet of grabbing the guy. But, no, that's fun because as you as you were down there, what's what's one of the biggest, uh, you know, uh, incidents you had while you were working the port of entry down there? I think uh, one of the biggest incidents besides, you know, seizing drugs was uh, steroids. Um, during that uh, period of 88 through uh, 90, we had uh, tons and tons of uh, steroid seizures. People coming in, especially the young kids up north, up north in California, they had uh, steroids that were worth between, you know, half a million dollars to a million dollars worth of uh, steroids coming through. Uh, There's a huge um, <clears throat> problem there with steroids. We had, of course, the of cocaine, tons of uh, cocaine coming through, methamphetamine, and of course the the heroin uh, too as as well. Did you guys were they still seeing quaaludes, or that had that time period already run by the time you got there? No, it uh, already ran. So okay. it was mostly uh, cocaine and uh, methamphetamine. <laughs> Uh, I remember, this will get you, Paul, you'll remember this one too in a minute, the band called the Atlanta Rhythm Section. They were doing a concert at our college, and he was talking, and then all of a sudden he goes, for those of you on Quaaludes, and I'd never heard of Quaaludes before, <laughs> figured out real quickly what those were. So, so Abe, is that how you got your taste for law enforcement? Is where, I mean, were you a sworn gun-carrying uh, agent at that time, or were you a civilian? No, I was a, I was a gun toner. So um, during that time, uh, from 88 to 1990, and in 1990, uh, in uh, December of 1990, I got the uh, the heads ups that I was going to, uh, back then it was the FBI DEA Academy in Quantico. So I started uh, with a DEA and um, got hired in January of 1991. 
What led you to DEA? Was it because of the drugs you were seizing on the border? Why did, uh, did you apply for any other agencies? I did. I did. Uh, like we all do, I applied for, uh, of course, I wanted to be a, a CHP, the California Highway Patrol, and I applied with the— Was that uh, because F- of Eric Estrada? And- yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to be a chippy. You wanted to be, to be the next paunch. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so uh, that, and I did apply for the FBI as well. And uh, I'm just fortunate enough to say that I became a DEA agent, which was... Right on, brother. Right on. (laughs) It was a dream come true. Well, Paul, let's talk about your ascent, because you started off uh, in in local law enforcement. Is that right? Yes. I I started off in um, Atlanta, Georgia, in law enforcement when I was 21 years old. And when I originally um, became a police officer... I was doing it, you know, to really pay my way through college and thought, uh, and this is back in when, 1980, 81, um, I was going to be a police officer to, you know, till I got my degree and I was, I got a computer, I got a degree in computer information systems and thought, you know, I'll, I'll go work with computers. That was the big, you know, new coming thing. Nerd, nerd, nerd. Hey, yeah, I gotta well, be. I got a sorry, degree sorry. in computer information systems too, Murph. And you see where it's got us. Okay, double right. nerd, double, double nerd, double. English, <laughs> you and I talk. Okay, let's do that. But uh, like, I think all of us. By the time I got ready to graduate, I was like, "There's no way I can go back to being a real civilian and working in, you know, some office pod or something like that." Um, you know, and so why'd you want to become a cop though in the first place? Was it just a job that was open or is, did you think that would be an exciting way to get you through college? Because chicks dig guys in uniform. I get that, Paul. Right. But, uh, <laughs> no, it was, it kind of came up, uh, one of my friends went and applied and, and told me about it. And I thought, oh, it sounds interesting. And it was, uh, the hiring process, they were really hiring you know, significantly back then, it was during the whole crack cocaine explosion of, you know, crack cocaine decimating inner cities and just destroying, you know, the way of life and huge spikes in crime. And so, I mean, the the hiring process was very easy. And then, you know, went to the police academy and came out and... How long was your academy? How long was that academy? It's four months, and came out and you know kind of got dropped right in the middle of uh, many war zones and had no idea what I was doing, and uh, you know went on from there and. Yeah, it was a rough time in Atlanta during that time. I mean, um, when you for, you said you were in the academy for four months, so 16 weeks, was that like straight through you guys had your own academy, then you went out with a field training officer? Yes, yes. And um, then from there, I, you know, I was a patrolman for about three years, uh, three and a half years, and then I... Um, got promoted to be a detective and was a detective on a joint um, task force, like a state and local task force in Atlanta. 
What kind uh, was it? Was drugs the, or a crime or a gang? It was actually it was actually drugs and vice at the time. And so most of what we did was drugs, but we, you know, had to do some vice work depending upon, you know, what was happening. But, um, you know, from there, I, how I found out about DEA or new DEA was uh, several of the cases that we would work. I would work with DEA agents in Atlanta from one of the groups there and, just over the time of working with them, they started talking to me and said, hey, why don't you come, you know, join DEA? You know, you can see the world and, you know. They look, stole that gotta... from the Navy. They stole that from yeah. the Navy recruiting poster. <laughs> uh, and plus, I don't know, I don't know if you know, but we have the coolest looking badge out of any agency in, in the world. So, you know, and then they showed me the badge. I was like, okay, because if you've ever seen the FBI badge, it's like, it's tiny. It's like two inches. Yeah, yeah it's very yeah. tiny. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, that, so I applied and right when I applied, there was a hiring freeze. And so it was like two years until, um, you know, I got hired and where, where this is interesting of Abe's and I career intersecting even way back when I started the DEA Academy in January of 1990 and then Abe, so Abe's class came in while I was still there. So we were at the academy, um, you know, for at least kind a of month overlapping. or so. Yeah. Yep. So you had about nine years in then before you got on it. Murph, that sounds like you guys almost had a similar trajectory. Were you one of the oldest guys in your class then at that time, Paul? Yes. Yes. You had to think about that. Is age catching up with you? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it, it was... As we all know, if, if I'd have known, uh, then I would have taken a lot better care of myself. <laughs> I'm just amazed uh, that you stayed out of jail, Paul, <laughs> no, it's, to make is, it in the police is. department. So. Well, hey, real quick before we get into the whole DEA thing, um, what was one of the um, you know things that you got into in Atlanta that still you, know, you look back on and you go, man, I'm lucky I survived this, or it was a, you know, a, a major incident that you were uh, either involved in or helped investigate? I think the the... First uh, experience I had was where I really, you know, kind of changed my whole perspective was um, shortly after I got out of field training, probably a couple weeks after, uh, I was involved in an incident where, um, you know, I, I was pretty naive as far as, you know, dealing with the law enforcement world and you know, being a police officer and, you know, wearing a uniform and uh, didn't realize like that, that, you know, for a lot of people that means you're the enemy, you know, you're not, you're not there to help people that you're the enemy. And I was called to this, uh, one of the Marta station parking lots, the rapid transit parking lots there in East Atlanta. And um, this guy had been threatening people verbally uh, outside of the station, and when you know, very naively, I walked up very close to him, and he was leaning against a light pole, and with his hand up in the air, and I walked up to him and was talking to him and said, "Hey, look, are you threatening people?" And obviously, he was, you know, under the influence. I could tell immediately by looking at his eyes, and 
then as I looked up and I'm standing, you know, because I'm, I'm, you know, this young police officer and I'm, you know. <laughs> Going to save the there, world. Right. I'm there to enforce the law. And I look up and he's in his hand that he has uh, leaning against the pole. He has a huge like kitchen butcher knife in his hand. And so, uh, again, you know, he could have easily just stuck it through my heart and I wouldn't have known, you know, anything before it happened. And so as I jumped back and I drew my gun and, you know, was telling him to put the knife down, quickly a large crowd gathered. And, you know, so I wasn't just dealing with him. I was all of a sudden, you know, dealing with people coming out of the crowd behind me. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure all of you, all of us have had the thought at parts, times in our career of, wow, I, I didn't see this coming or, you know, expect this to develop like this. And so, you know, I put out a help call over the radio and, you know, that's one of the things in law enforcement, you know, especially, um, you know, when something like that happens and you hear hundreds of sirens across the city, you know, turn on at once and the cavalry's coming and, you know, probably within, I remember the, the first officer to arrive was a motorcycle officer. He was going so fast that he, uh, he had to be doing at least 70 miles an hour. And this was on a regular city street. <laughs> he was going so fast, he passed us and <laughs> locked up the motorcycle. And this was before, this was before, you know, ABS brakes. And so he skidded like a hundred feet. Tires, <laughs> this like, you know, screeching of tires. And, uh, you know, within, within five minutes, there was probably 60 police officers there. And the guy would, didn't wasn't going to put the knife down. He was backed up against this chain link fence, and we're, there's 60 cops standing in a semicircle. And uh, one of our sergeants got there and said, "Hey, look, you know, there's 60 of us. One of you just put the knife down." And he's walking up and down the sidewalk with the knife, you know, swinging the knife. And he said, "Well, today may just be the day I get taken out." And so then some officers from our, our SWAT office wasn't very far down the road. They showed up, and I'd never heard of a taser. I didn't know tasers existed. Back then, it was this giant metal box, you know, yeah. that they had to carry out, like, with this, like this strap-on, <laughs> you know, weighed, like, 40 pounds. And I saw the guy, and I was like, what is that? And they shot him with a taser and, and tased him, and then we arrested him. But that's when I realized, like, hey, this is for real. You know, this isn't... Were um, you wearing Kevlar at the time? Any body armor? Yeah, I was wearing a bulletproof vest, but... Uh, as, but as we know, knives and stuff, those original yeah, vests weren't right. really good for knives. You no, know, no, 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 that, that, wouldn't have, yeah. that wouldn't have stopped it. But... You know, that, that hearing those sirens coming, there's no better feeling in the world when you realize your life is in danger. You know help's on the way, and it might take 30 seconds to get there, but that seems like three days. Well, and it doesn't help, Murph, when you're walking around with a, a submachine gun with no identification when your partner got shot and the cops show up and they think you're one of the bad guys. That was only once. That only happened one time. I never did that again. <laughs> yeah. Put that gun down. Hey, well, Abe, let's go back to you for a minute. Let's talk about 
You get selected, you go to the academy. Um, you said it was, you were down at Quantico, right? Yes, that was the uh, Quantico, Virginia. Uh, we did three months there in uh, Quantico, and then I was assigned. Well, don't, uh, you're blowing, you're blowing, no, no, you're blowing through the academy too fast. We got there, but we're finding out there's some fun stuff that happens in the academy oh, as we uh, as we so talk true. with other agents of it. That is so oh, true. Oh, well, sounds like there's a story there, Abe. Let's hear your story. Let me just tell you, um, I thought I was in good physical shape uh, going through the academy, and uh, of course, I played soccer, I did all kinds of um Sport, uh, sports going through the academy I, um, I placed uh, number one in our PT academy and then I was having a, a lunch at um, with our four of our um, they're called bats basic agent uh, training um, we weren't called agents yet so we were called bats and uh, during there I got I was sitting down and my uh, counselor goes up to me he goes come here Abe and I go up to him and I go yes sir and he says hey the only reason, he says, the only reason is that you're actually, you run and you do good um, PT is because, he says, you chase a lot of wetbacks. And I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> Holy smokes. I'm like, wetbacks. I said, you mean Border Patrol? I said, we follow a lot of people. Yes, we did follow a lot of people. But I said, that's not it. I said, I just, I'm naturally, uh, <clears throat> You know, I'm just trying to do a good thing here. But, we, you know, we go through these uh, events where, you know, we did have t- tons of fun there. But at the same time, we had some uh, idiots, you know, giving you a hard time. And, you know, you're grown men. You've ever gone through an academy. You know what to expect. But um, honestly, um, we got out of there in uh, May of um 1991 and sure enough i was assigned to our san diego field division and uh from there the story well, starts let's, uh, well, let's let's did, did yeah, you ahead, have Steve. to write any memos in the academy i did i did and you won't believe this i wrote uh, thank you Murph. thank you for that uh, I had, we're here for you brother nah. so i was going through our undercover uh, course that they uh, teaches there for about two hours. It felt like um, uh, going through there, being Hispanic and thinking that uh, I was going to go through the our time. So uh, <clears throat> they put me to do undercover, and um, I go out there to a uh, a restaurant. I meet the guy who's another, of course, another instructor. I meet him. I ask him for heroin. And during the purchase, I um, I thought I did a good thing. I bought the, I asked him for the heroin. He sells me the heroin. And then I go back after, after a couple hours, we go back to the class and I get called in front of the class and says, um, Abe, come up here. And I get up there to uh, the front of the class. He goes, you freaking blew it. And I'm like, blow what? I said, I purchased the uh, the heroin, didn't I? He goes, no, you asked for the wrong shit. He goes, you're not supposed to uh, be buying that type of I'm like, I got the first introduction. I went in there and bought dope. And I'm like, what a loser. I thought for myself, for the rest of my life, I won't be able to do any undercover. <laughs> so from there on, I honestly thought when I got back to San Diego, I said, I won't be able to do any undercover. Won't be able to do any undercover. Thinking that. And sure enough, from one day to another, I started in a task force environment. I started doing some small-time undercover buys and stuff like that. I met a lot of uh, uh, huge crooks um, based out of Mexico. And um, within three, four years, 
four years, I, be, I do a long-term undercover for DEA. It's probably the longest and the uh, last long-term undercover. I did uh, almost a two-year undercover for a DEA. Wow. Well, let's let's hold on to that for a second, because the one last thing, too, before we bring Paul and ask him about his famous experience, and he's already thinking of the, the number of memos. I already can see in his face he had to write a lot of memos. Uh, but for you, Abe, so what were your selections? Where did you want to go? Before they told you you were going to San Diego, what were your choices? I had put uh, Phoenix, Arizona. I had put um, L.A. And uh, third choice was uh, San Diego. Okay. So why? Just because uh, it was close to where you'd grown up or you liked the area? Yeah. Plus, it was the southwest border. I knew the southwest um, border, so I knew the town. So I could that's it. Hey, I could stick to uh, here uh, locally in the, uh, on, the, on the west coast. Well, let's talk to you now, Paul. Um, let's talk about your exciting time down at DEA's. <laughs> well, in comparison to Abe and, and you guys, you guys will, will both get this, that uh, having, having been in law enforcement for over seven years, I didn't finish number one in PT. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me either, Paul. Uh, <laughs> uh, I did all right, but... You know, uh, the the interesting thing about the academy at the time, DEA hired a thousand agents that year, and so the academy was beyond overcrowded, and they were moving so many people through there, and they had actually reduced the the academy down to twelve weeks. How many people were in your class? 18. Well, you'd start with fifty, so it was fifty in each class. And at one point, when Abe and I were there, there were six classes wow, there wow. at the same time. And then you have all the FBI classes. So, I mean, it, it was it was very, very, you know, hectic. And they, I think it's 18 weeks now. It was 12 weeks then. It was, you know, every, and it was seven days a week, um, you know, on weekends as well to because of the compressed schedule. But the hard thing is because obviously they have to teach from the the um, perspective of there are people that uh, have never been in law enforcement. So you know, having been in law enforcement, a lot of it is very basic or very repetitive, and you know, it's it's also you know some frustration because you're having to live you know in a dorm like atmosphere, that type of you know. Uh, kind of environment, but it, w- it was very good training. But one of the things that uh, I think having been in law enforcement, you know, you, they, they send each class, they send four agents from the field to be uh, counselors for that class. And so these are all agents that have been on for several years and go in there and help, you know, with the uh, training as well as helping, you know, with the personal issues or, or whatever, you know, the class needs or, or agents in the class. And so since uh, several of us in my class had, you know, some significant time in law enforcement, I think we had a lot easier time and, and you know, met with the agents and had some kind of mutual respect. And what was interesting was when, when each class was getting ready to graduate, they would, you know, generally, you know, uh, the one of the last nights they would have a keg party, you know, for that class, and they would come back to the dorm, you know, pretty jazzed up, 
And, you know, the, one of the things was they would go mess with the other classes that were still there for, especially the class that had just got there that still has like 10 weeks to go. And so this was going on so regularly that one of the, one of the, and, and I, I still knew him. I met him there. He was one of the counselors for the other classes and I've, I've known him since then and very good friends. He was like, had had it with these, you know, uh, students after the kick party coming back and, you know, causing all this ruckus in the, in the hallways. So he, from, from one of our practical exercises, he took a bunch of the, the simunition, <laughs> you know, back then the simunition was the, you know, you had to shoot it out of a revolver and it hurt like hell. If you got yeah. hit by it, you know, you had to wear the masks and the heavy clothing and so he brought some of the simunition back, and in his little, you know, ankle gun, thirty-eight. Oh, and they started, you know, raising hell in the hallways. And he's like, "I told you to cut it out." And they're still yelling. And he pulls his pistol out with the simunition. <laughs> oh my god! And, and shoots a couple, shoots a couple of the students in the hallway in the legs, and that pretty much kind of ended, uh, ended all that. That sobered you up real quick. It was because it makes yeah. it sound like a shot going off. Yeah, but it, it was it's very interesting environment. Oh, wow. and, and times times have changed. Uh, oh, yeah. oh yeah, no no time that now what we're talking like you know thirty years ago. Wow. Yeah, I had a training uh, officer, a state trooper, more than thirty years. Yeah, ago, that yeah. Uh, decided he would. Uh, we're outside the division headquarters, and he sees a squirrel, and he doesn't like squirrels, so he pulls out his backup weapon, pops up a couple of shots at him, and I'm going, "You can do that." He goes, "Well, yeah." <laughs> <laughs> I won't, I won't mention his radio number, but uh, it wasn't too far from mine. But uh, hey, so Paul, let's talk about you too. So memos. Do you write any memos? I did. I had to write a memo about we were on a practical exercise, and um, the scenario is we we're doing raids, and as we go through the door, they have instructors that are uh, playing the the bad guys inside, and as we came, and so as we come through the door, I'm like third back. As we come through the door, the two entry guys are shot immediately, you know, with the simunition. And so there's a, there's somebody that's running the practical that's like, if you get hit, he's like, you're out, you're out. You know, you got to sit down, just sit where you are. So, again, back then we had revolvers. And so right as we come through the door, the one instructor empties his revolver, hits the two guys, uh coming through the door and obviously I know he's out of ammo because he, you know, shot six rounds and he starts running back down the hallway and I jump down the hallway and I shoot him, you know, as he's running down the hallway and the, the instructor goes nuts of you just shot an unarmed man in the back. I'm like, yeah. And he proceeded to just go crazy in front of everybody of, how could you do that? You're, you know, you're going to, you're going to get indicted and you're going to, you know, the stain on DEA's reputation and just makes this big deal out of it. And when he said, you know, you're going to get indicted, I said, not in Georgia. This is good shit. And so I started to, to argue with him and I said, look, this guy just shot and probably killed two police officers what am I supposed to do? Let him go back in and get another gun, and then we have to fight him again? 
I said, this was, this was to write you know, a great, right. And so he got in my face and I realized at that point, hey, it wasn't. And he's like, you're going to write a memo and you're going to do this, whatever. And so later that afternoon, we're on a break. I went in the office and I, in his office and I said, look, I apologize. But I said, look, I'm just maybe I'm wrong in how I'm thinking about this. But I said, I've been involved in some, you know, really serious incidents and to me, this is, you know, I don't see the problem. And he said, Paul, look, it's not, he goes, what you did was right. He goes, but we have all these people that have no law enforcement experience. And so we have to teach, you know, we can't teach them the finer parts of this right now. We got to teach them. You can't shoot people in the back. <laughs> you know, we, we can't, you know, get into this advanced kind of law enforcement issues. And he said, that's why I made an issue out of it. He goes, what you did was fine. I don't really need the memo. I just, you know, did that. So, you know, the new people would understand. And right before that, we had had someone in um, the the shooting simulator, you know, the electronic shooting simulator. That's, I think that firearms training system. Had, yeah. Yeah, we had had somebody, you know, shoot somebody in the back that didn't have a weapon and didn't do anything, right? And so that had been a big issue. So, um, but that was my one, you know, time of. You only had to write one memo? I think so. Oh, dang. You... So, is that because you're from Jordan and you can't write or what? <laughs> that, that was pretty much it. Come on, Paul. And, and no, no, luckily, luckily, Steve, we had several people in my class that took the heat off everybody. You always want, I was that, so, I was that guy too. I was knows. the one always asking the question. Oh, here goes well, I'll tell you real quick, firearms, the, what they call fat simulator. We had a state senator from Kansas in the community college, and we just have this new system out there. And we had these Berettas. They actually had semi-automatics. And with, but with that, that ammunition they used was supposed to simulate, you know, a shotgun. It wasn't like the real thing. But anyway, so long story short, hostage situation, guy peeks his head out, and I felt I was a good enough shot. I just shot the guy in the forehead. And, oh, my God, what'd you do? And I said, saved ammo. <laughs> this shit's expensive. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't see the humor in that. Hey, for our... For our listeners, when we're talking about writing a memo in the academy, that's the way. It's it's a, a really light form of punishment, I guess, is what you'd call well, it. It's, it's uh, learning it's, of how to you know, learn. And speaking of learning, we've had to train Murphy that these are listeners, not viewers. We had a couple podcasts where Murph goes, "Now for our viewers, I go, Murph, it's a podcast, not a video." <laughs> I can see, I can see you right on my screen now, Morgan. I still don't oh, understand yeah. that. All right, Paul. Last question for you then, coming out of the academy. Right, your picks. What were your picks, and where did you end up going? Well, this was at the time I thought the very the very sad part of this was so I, as I told you I worked a lot with DEA in Atlanta and so when I was getting ready to go to the academy they're like Paul you know this is going to be great you're going to come back you come right in our group you already have you're already working you know you've already brought us several of the cases that we're working now you know and so they're like we already talked to the SAC here in Atlanta and. You know, he's going to put a call in. So when they go to announce the picks in the class and what they would do is they would, everybody would come in there and they would call you up there and then they would open this envelope and read off where you're going, right? And so everybody before me 
was going back. That was the other thing. Everybody up until that point was going back to the city that where they were hired because they were hiring so many people. They didn't have the funding to ship everybody to different places all over the country. And when I went up there and I was thinking, ah, Atlanta, you know, this is, this one should be easy. And they said, no, McAllen, Texas. Where the hell is McAllen, Texas? <laughs> right. No, that's it's part of Mexico. And so I was like, you know, kind of shocked. And then what does this mean? And, you know, then I thought, well, maybe I can get it changed or so anyway, you know how the bureaucracy works. The, it was, it was a done deal. Uh, I seriously, when I went back to Atlanta, I was thinking, oh, I wonder if I can get my job back as a cop. But I, you know, sucked it up and went to McAllen, Texas, which is on, you know, for the listeners, is on the Mexican, U.S. and Mexico border in South Texas. And it was, I went from, you know, the, you know, working in a, a very urban environment to going to McAllen, which is a small city, and, um, you know, dealing with, Mexican drug cartels and, you know, huge amounts of drugs coming across the border uh, and had no idea what I was doing. I mean, I, I knew as far as the work, the work was, you know, still the same procedures and everything. But, you know, I, I didn't speak the language. Most of the people we arrested didn't speak English. Um, I didn't know a lot about the culture down there. Uh, you know, and, and it was back then, you know, it's McAllen's come a long way in 30 years, but back then it was, it was challenging, but it was the best experience that I could have had as far as opening my eyes to, you know, other parts of what goes on, not just in the U S but worldwide and, you know, with international drug cartels and also the, the amount of experience that we got because federal court really was the only option um, there. The um, you got so much experience prosecuting cases in federal court. I mean, every month I probably had two or three cases, you know, being called just just because of the amount of work there. And these weren't like checkpoint cases or border seizures. These were like real, you know. Uh, by bus or reverses and things like that. So we really learned the system. You really got to understand and, you know, um, the court, federal court system and, you know, how it all comes together and, you know, some of the challenges, which really helped me, you know, as my career advanced. Abe, let's go back to you because you talk now about you got to San Diego, which is actually was your third choice. So it didn't come as a shock to you. You said you were a little hesitant or, you know, you didn't think you were going to be able to work UC. So tell us about how you started getting into these. Tell us about that long-term investigation, the one that you, you got started with. That was one of the longer term ones. What was it? Who did it target? What were you going after? We were uh, <clears throat> targeting um, uh, Mexicans, uh, especially on the money laundering side. So we had, uh, it was called Green Eyes 2. The first Green Eyes started in, um, I believe, in Miami, and it trickled down to, of course, other offices. But Green Eyes 2, we had the uh, <clears throat> targeting uh, the major Mexican um Drug trafficking groups based out of, of course, there was two um, two places that we targeted, and that was Michoacan, which people call 
Mich- uh, the, the city is Michoacan in Mexico. Some people call it uh, Michigan for many reasons. But uh, <laughs> they had so much uh, heroin and uh, methamphetamine coming out of uh, that state. And uh, we targeted, uh, on the money laundering side, we targeted, uh, of course, the money. We had a, um, a, a basically a storefront where we had... Uh, us portraying as money launderers for these uh, huge um, guys that were bringing in tons of uh, of heroin and methamphetamine, and uh, sure enough, I within the two years that I was there, I was able to infiltrate not only within the uh, stores, but I was able to infiltrate most of the drug traffickers. At one time, I was asking. Um, besides getting the the money exchange, sending it to bank accounts in in Mexico through our um, our um, our fictitious uh, accounts that we had here and 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 um in the U.S. We had uh, these guys bringing in uh, dope, but uh, for me, because I was still in the money side, I would say, hey, I don't have much money to to uh, spend here in the U.S. Is there any way we could do a? Uh, you gotta have that um, that evidence to get that um, that drugs and the money. To be an illicit uh, pro from illicit proceeds, so I'd always ask, "Hey, is there any way I could get a, a couple keys of uh, meth or a couple keys of a heroin?" So this guy walks into uh, to the store one day and says, "Hey, I want to transfer a half a million dollars to uh, to Mexico to Michoacan to uh, one of my aunts." I said, "Well, give me the account number," and he does give me the account number. He gives me the um, all the information that that I need, and then I, I just asked him, "Hey, is there any way I could uh, get a couple keys of?" Uh, he goes, "You shouldn't be mixing um, the money with the co- uh, with the uh, heroin." And I said, "No, I'm trying to make some side money here. Is there any way we can get some?" He goes, "Well, let me come back from Fresno. I'm going to make a delivery." And I was able just to talk to him for a while, and he says, "I'm delivering a large uh, shipment of um, heroin." And um, he would call it Chiba. Chiba would be a, a slang for heroin. And I said, "Well, how do you how do you take it out there?" So um, he says, "Well, let me show you." He actually had a compartment inside his uh, vehicle that you actually like. You press the radio and you press the on uh, button, and it actually opens up a, a compartment. So within that time, I was like, "Okay." So it was that was a, a Thursday, and. Um, and um, at that time, I told him, I said, hey, is there any way we could, um, when you come back, negotiate another um, a transaction? He goes, yeah. I had the um, the local PD there um, actually bet him down at uh, one of his houses that he actually had where they were going to take this uh, vehicle from uh, from L.A., because the undercover uh, uh, storefront was up in L.A., so we followed him, or they followed him from all the way from um, L.A. up to um, Fresno, California. They do, they do a, um, a traffic stop, a T-stop on him, and sure enough, they, um, they have the canine. The canine does... Uh, of course, emanates the uh, the order of uh, drugs in there, and sure enough, he had 17 keys of uh, heroin inside the the vehicle. So uh, you could just see the amounts of tr- of uh, 
trucks that were moving in from, of course, from Mexico into L.A. and L.A. up to the north uh, north of uh, California. Hey, Abe, how, those 17 keys, just roughly, how much were those worth at that time, if you remember, per key? What were you, what were they getting for heroin? Uh, back then, it was $60,000 per heroin, uh, key of heroin. Oh, what were they getting for Coke? For Coke back then, it was $25,000 per uh, kilo of Coke. Was this black tar heroin or brown heroin? It was all brown heroin. Well, which meant for your for the the amount of keys that you were doing, it was much more profitable to transport heroin than it was coke. If you were going to pick one or the other, huh? Oh yes, yes, it was uh, much. Uh, and you get to understand too is uh, it was the package the way it was packaged. It was a lot easier for them to put it into uh, the compartments. A lot easier to put it underneath the seats. So it was, it was a lot easier for them to move the uh, the heroin than the coke the, the bricks. You know, just to, to have a little history lesson here, real quickly. Uh, when I came on DEA in the in the late 1980s, a kilo of heroin back then, how the heroin was coming from Southeast and Southwest Asia. So, uh, and the primary market was New York City. A kilo of heroin now, a kilo of coke in the late 1980s down in Miami might go for twenty four thousand, twenty five, twenty six thousand wholesale. A kilo of heroin wholesale was going at three hundred to three hundred fifty thousand dollars for one kilo. Now, what that developed into is that is the Colombians learned how to produce heroin down there, and they it took them a while to refine their process to where they could get to the 97, 98% of, uh, percent purity levels. But once they did, they started offering their heroin at 50000 a kilo and just knocked the Asians completely out of the market in the United States. So there's a piece of trivia you'll never God use bless again capitalism, life. comrades. <laughs> hey, Paul, let's talk about you. What was one of you? You said you were down there in McAllen, but what was one of the first big... You know, when we say big, it's like, you know, you've got, like you say, your, your, your run-of-the-mill stuff. But what was one of the first big things you got into where you went and like, man, this is wicked shit, baby? Well, we, in this one case, um, we were, uh, it, it's, it's weird. The, we were out on surveillance and we saw a... Uh, we were on surveillance on another target that we were getting ready to do a, a buy bust purchase and then arrest the person of like 1,300 pounds of marijuana. And there was some downtime. And so we saw this um, Lincoln Continental with Tamaulipas plates, which was the Mexican state plates from across the border. Which almost constituted Macallan. probable cause to stop and search at any point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's not profiling. And so... We, we decided, hey, let's just follow this car and see who this is and what they're doing. And we saw him go to uh, one of the, the parking lot of this. At the, it was actually a Globe store was the name of the, the store. And they sat there for a while. A van pulled up. The passenger from the uh, Lincoln got out got in the driver's side of the van, the van driver got back in the Lincoln, and then they started driving off and splitting up. So we decided, hey, let's stay with the van and see where the van goes. And so, um, you know, the van's driving, uh, and we decide, hey, let's just, let's get a traffic stop done on it and just ID the guy and see what's going on. So, uh you know, we had to follow him for probably like six or seven miles before we could get a marked unit. We get him pulled over. Right when he pulls over, he jumps out and starts running. 
And so, you know, we chase him down, grab him, go back to the the van. It's got 800 kilos oh, of coke whoa. in the van. <laughs> wow. So <laughs> Nice hit. Uh, we're like, hey, we got to figure out who's driving that Lincoln Continental. So we actually do some more investigation. And from some of the information we got from the van, we were able to determine where the van had come from, which where that the house that it had been. And, and what was interesting was the house the van had come out of was like four houses down from where one of our agents <laughs> lived. So we we actually set up, you know, instead of setting up the pole camera in front of the house, we just put it in his front window of his house, you know, shooting out the window. Hey, and Paul, for for folks who don't know, tell tell them what a pole camera is. No, that's when um, if you want to do, it's very hard to do long-term surveillance. And one of the ways you get around it where people don't recognize that are being surveilled is back then it was with the street lights. Um, they would go out and um, re- replace a street light with another street light that looked, you know, similar, but actually had a camera in it. It was powered with electricity. And from back in the office, then you could watch and it was, you know, it was over like a phone line. So it was just like, you know, logging onto the internet. It, it only showed an image like every 20 seconds, it would show one picture. So it wasn't live video, but you could tell if something was going on at the house. And so we saw, you know, a couple days later, we saw activity at the house and we went over there and set up on surveillance and saw another van uh, in the pull in and back into the garage. And so we sat on it for like four hours and finally the van left and we went to um, do a traffic stop on that van and he took off and we got in a pursuit and it was in the middle of the afternoon and the van's headed, he's he's head south because generally if you've got a vehicle pursuit, they're going to go down and try and run the border and get to Mexico. And so as we get in this vehicle pursuit, uh, one, of the, one of the agents in our group, we actually had uh, a couple U.S. Customs guys from U.S. Customs Service back then, you know, that became ICE or HSI. They... Uh, a couple of the agents were out there with us, and one of them was brand new out of the academy and was riding with one of our female agents who she had been on the job for like 30 years. You know, she was back from the BNDD days. So she was she was a good agent, but she wasn't, you know, she was lower speed as far as, you know, what she was very smart in how she operated. And so as we're getting in the pursuit and we're we're chasing this van. She realizes that we're going to go by her in the opposite direction. So she pulls into a parking lot and is waiting for us to go by and then get in the, you know, the back of the pursuit. And while she's there, she looks over and the brand new customs agent that's riding with her is actually out of the vehicle in the middle of the street, like, you know, <laughs> Clint Eastwood. <laughs> Dirty Aries. And, and is drawn down on the vehicle. 
And as the vehicle comes, he just starts unloading, you know, at the vehicle and bullets are zinging. It ends up like two of our surveillance cars get hit with bullets, you know, oh, bullet holes geez. in them. Uh, Talk about you know, writing a memo. Yeah. And so, you know, we go by and somebody calls out, shots fired. And so we're thinking like, he, the van's shooting, right? Who Except else would be shooting? fire. Uh, <laughs> oh, my god! Right. And so it goes out, shots fired. And, I mean, we're blowing through. We, we went through the school zone where the school was letting out, at, you know, 80 miles an hour. And right after that is when the, the, the agent shot at the vehicle. And so when the shots fired came out, uh, the actual task force commander who was in front of me in a really big pickup truck with the push bars on it, he, as, as we're going around this curve, he just pitted, pitted the van and it shot out. It, it went off the side and went airborne and landed embedded on this big metal fence pole, you know, because it's all it was a farm field there, and just missed the driver by about a foot of impaling him, and he was still pretty messed up in the wreck. And so that in, in that van, then we go over there and find nine hundred kilo more kilos of coke. And, and can you, Paul, can you explain what you mean when you said that he pitted the the van? Yeah, so once the shots fired went out, he he you know drove up at a higher speed, and if you hit a vehicle from behind at a higher speed and off you know off to the side somewhat offset, it lightens the back wheels and then it pushes it around and generally sends the vehicle you know off the road or sideways and or spins it out. You know, depending on what kind of road you're on, or spins it. If you're on the well, expressway, nerd alert. Here's the out. actual term: pursuit intervention technique. <laughs> so that's. And by the way, too, you mentioned another term we wanted to find real quick, but you were on a roll. I didn't want to interrupt you. It was BNDD. So the forerunner to DEA was called the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. BNDD. So BNDD became DEA. So if you were back on in the days of BNDD, you're right. You were, uh, you'd been around for a while. You've been on a while. <laughs> so yeah. agent, so Dirty Harry uh, Callahan there, the one that fired the shots. I, I mean, what uh, under what pretense did he think that standing out in the middle of the road, shooting at a van with friendlies behind? I mean, I'm at a loss for words. I'm going, how the hell does somebody like this make it out of an academy? I mean, he was customs. Why the hell didn't you stop this guy from graduating, Abe? <laughs> I think it was the wild, wild west there where they actually just, I mean, it's like Dirty Harry in the middle of the road there and started shooting at these guys. Fats. Paul, you went through some. Wow. What, was, what was interesting is after, <laughs> after the crash and we're all there, he, you know, he comes pulling up. And the car with uh, the agent, or the DEA agent, and she's beyond angry. And he, we're all like standing around. And as he pulls up and he gets out and it was, his demeanor was so funny. It was like, you know, this, this kind of like little puppy, like, hey, did you see that? That was good, right? That was really good, you know? He, he was hyped. Did you know at the time when they showed up, did you know that it was him firing? This, did you guys know? Okay. Oh, yes. So when they said yeah. shots fired, no. did you know it was the, no, the that, customs guys shooting? No, no. We knew by the time he got there. We didn't know until after oh, okay. the wreck. 
somebody somebody came out on the radio and said, "No, it wasn't. The fire didn't come from the van. It was, you know, friendly fire." Police. <laughs> yeah. Well, what so, happened to the guy? The, the agent, the customs guy. I think he got a reprimand. <laughs> yeah, it was a memo. I've wrote a few memos. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we we laugh about it. That's, no, that's, that's not at all what you're well, supposed you know, to the do. Other thing too is, it's, it's just a matter of physics. Well, who the hell thinks that what he's probably, you know, maybe 5'10", 180, I don't even know who the guy is, but let's say on average, you think a 5'10", 180 pound guy is going to stop a speeding van? The guy's already shown a propensity to run. He doesn't want to get caught. He wants to get across that border. He's going to run. Yeah. The, the, well, actually, this guy's lucky he didn't get his ass run over because that has actually happened. Officers during pursuits been oh, hit, yeah. you oh, know? Yeah, yeah. Sure. so it's like, so in one day, you have 1,700 kilos snatched, and you got 900 out of the one, right? 800 out of the other. Did you go back and hit the house shortly after that, I assume? Yeah, we went, we went back and hit the house. There was still like 50 kilos there, and they had been obviously... Um, there was on the garage floor, there was cocaine, like, like sand, sand at the beach. And, um, they, they had been using that location to repackage the Coke and put it in hidden compartments. And we found the ledgers, uh, from the house that in like the, Two months before that, 9,000 kilos had gone through that house. Wow. So speaking of writing memos, did the agent who lived only four doors down that this was all going under <laughs> right in front of him have to write a memo? Did he move? <laughs> <laughs> no, but see, the, that, was, that was the challenge of living on the border because it was the, you know, the chances of you, you know, being immersed in society with people that were involved in illegal drug activity, it was very common. So, I mean, it was, um, you know, down there at the time, because there's a lot of Border Patrol agents, there's a lot of customs, a lot of DEA. It was generally, you know, there was, we were all interspersed or living amongst people that were actively involved in it, even in the neighborhoods where we were living. So it wasn't, it wasn't uncommon. The traffickers are just trying to blend in with the legal citizens there as well, because they don't want to do anything to cause them to stick out, right? Yeah. And well, there, plus there's a lot of just regular citizens that become involved in it because it's lucrative. And they have family members on the Mexican side that, you know, have smuggled, been smuggling liquor or whatever for years and years and years and get involved in drugs. So, but what, what was interesting about this, as we get back to the Lincoln, the Lincoln from the beginning, we track that vehicle to a house up in north, north of McAllen, go up there, do a knock and talk on the house which is where you just, you don't have a warrant, you don't have probable cause to go in, but you go up and knock on the door and just ask them questions. The the man that answers the door, the, so the Lincoln's in the park, in the uh, driveway, the, the man is obviously a Mexican citizen, you know, from Mexico. It's a, it's a pretty luxurious house, you know, probably even back then, probably a five or $600,000 really big ranch house. Um, so we ask him, Hey, who is he? Uh, he gives us a fake name, what turns out to be a fake name. We actually, he agrees to let us come in the house and look around. We go in the house and we find 20 kilos in the house. (laughs) 
Uh, and so we arrest them. And what what's interesting about, and this kind of highlights the environment. So we arrest him. We figure out who he is. He is like one of the top leaders of the Gulf Cartel at the time, this guy, um, Manuel Valladares. And had never was never coming across, you know, always stayed on the south side where they were protected and there was no way anybody anything was gonna happen to him. But his girlfriend at the time was from McAllen. She didn't want to live in Mexico. And so he ended up getting that house and living there for a few months. And plus he was supervising the the shipments going out of the house where we we found well, all the but, code. But real quickly, why in the hell? I mean, it always amazed me, too, when I would ask for permission to search or you do stuff, you'd have trunk loads of money or dope. Why did this guy give you, why did he let you search the house? Did he think he had it hidden so well you wouldn't do it? Or did he feel, oh, they've got me? Well, one, I don't think he had a, like a super understanding of U.S. law. And in Mexico, if the police right ask there. you to search, you pretty much, <laughs> yeah, you pretty much say, if you say no, you know, they're going to search anyway. So, you know, I don't I don't know what his thinking was, but I think that was part of it. And so this guy turns out again, he's under the Gulf Cartel at the time. He's probably the number three guy in the Gulf Cartel. He goes to and so he's arrested. He goes to jail, which the federal detention facility in McAllen at the time was the county sheriff's jail, right? So he goes to jail and, um, you know, we're like, wow, this is a big, huge case. You know, we got this, you know, huge target. He's looking at life. Maybe he'll cooperate down the road. He's going to, he could tell us everything. And a couple weeks go by. And then one night uh, he's being visited by his attorney and, they pull him out and put him in one of the lawyer interview rooms, which is right inside. Like as you pull up to the jail where the Sally Port is, is where you go in the doors there. The attorneys enter there, and then there's some um, interview rooms there. Uh, as they go in, the attorneys going in, three hooded, masked gunmen go in right after him. And throw tear gas canisters inside the jail right there in the Sally Port and pull out guns and grab him out of the, the room and whisk him away and break him out of jail, take him back to Mexico. Which in turn led to that led to the investigation of the sheriff at the time. Was he complicit? Come to find out he. Yes. So we ended up taking down the sheriff of the county, who was a very powerful figure at the time. So all this just continued on for, you know, a couple of years as far as the investigation and all the, you know, just highlighting the amounts of corruption and the amounts of money and the amount of drugs. I want to point out this all was because you were fucking bored and you said, hey, let's take a look at that Lincoln. (laughs) That's how this all started. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. That's how, that's how the, you know, when you when you really hear about the biggest seizures that have ever happened, they're all most of them were based upon some little chance thing, not based upon some. Oh yeah, you know, one one little traffic stop leads to a bigger investigation, leads to something bigger. You know, pull the thread. Well, um, okay, let's let's. Uh, I'm not going to try and top that. And <laughs> that's, that's a hell of a story right there, guys. I got to tell you, right, that's Abe, a good story. You, you, you got to talk about to when you landed on buddy. the moon and you found fifty kilos. You know. <laughs> 
let's hey, let's let's start getting into let's start laying the groundwork because what we want to start doing is eventually um, you both are going to be involved in, in the hunt for El Chapo, but to do that you have to be down in Mexico to begin with, right? So let's talk about your uh, you know how did you end up getting into Mexico, and then what we want to do is talk about let's talk about the Sinaloa, let's talk about AFO, let's talk about Gulf Cartel, you know what was going on. So Abe, first with you, how did you uh, so kind of tell us you know recap your time in San Diego? What finally opportunity? presented itself for you to say, hey, there's a chance for me to go to Mexico. So I finished my um, long-term undercover in 1996. And known for the fact that uh, we were working, of course, the Sinaloa Cartel, we were working the AFO, the Ariano Felix organization. Uh, we were working, of course, the uh, <clears throat> the uh, Amado Carrillo organization. And during that time, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm getting frustrated here. I did just finish a two-year uh, two cover. I know that all the big-time dopers are south of the border. So I said, oh, let me put in for for um, for a couple spots in uh, Mexico. So I put in for our Guadalajara office, and I put in for our Merida, Mexico office as well. And... Um, at that, hey, for for folks who don't familiar with a, a map, a kind of you know we know where San Diego is. It's right down there by the California, you know, Mexico border. So where you're talking about, where are those areas located in relation to San Diego? The um, the Guadalajara is basically in central uh, Mexico, the central of Mexico uh, on the uh, Pacific uh, side of the um, <clears throat> land, and uh, and the Merida is on the. Um, <clears throat> Basically, on the uh, southeast of uh, near the uh, beautiful beaches of Cancun, the uh, Yucatan Peninsula, Quintana Roo, correct? You mean there was drug dealing going on while I was in vacation in Cancun? Oh, there was definitely more. <laughs> yes, there was so much. Oh, I knew there was a dirty oh, side well. to you, Morgan. You wonder how I afforded those vacations? <laughs> no, sorry. Let's go back. Merv starts digging a hole he can't get out of. So uh, I get uh, <clears throat> I get selected in uh, nineteen. 1997 to uh, to uh, to get assigned to our office in uh, Merida, Yucatan, Mexico, and uh, <clears throat> and uh, actually my first experience there was of course uh, as the new agent to uh, to Mexico. You know you, you're thinking that um, you you got uh, of course the Mexican uh, um, officers, the state officers, the local officers, and of course. The, uh, the the prosecutors. And during that time, we didn't have a special unit assigned uh, to us until later in those those years. Uh, 1999, we get our first assignment of the special um, investigative unit, which is the SIU, which is a smaller type of uh, federal agents assigned to uh, to conduct these uh, special uh, investigations with us. Uh, and then <clears throat> during the time I was there, so I, I got there in January of 1999, and we started looking into the, our first uh, was big case there was the Amado Carrillo a case where they were bringing in, I mean, tons and tons of go-fast vessels from Colombia into the beautiful waters of Cancun. And um, we start digging more into the um, the Amado Carrillo organization. There was, of course, uh, several um, 
people that we identified. It got up to the, I mean, the corruption there. You start you start worried about uh, working in Mexico. I know that when Murph worked in Colombia, it was a lot easier because everybody was running uh, dope from uh, Colombia, and it was a le- easier in the sense of working there. But we had so many challenges in uh, in Mexico that uh, we started. I thought it was more like a a chess game where. You have to find out which cops are working with the Sinaloa cartel, which cartels are working with the Juarez cartel, which cartels are working with, the, uh, you know, so we can work and identify those uh, those um, those groups. And uh, we were on that Amado Carrillo case. We were able to identify probably one of the biggest corrupted officials there, who was the, the governor of Quintana Roo. Quintana Roo by the name of Mario Villanueva uh, Madrid. And he was actually charging half a million dollars per uh, drug that they were bringing in from Colombia into Mexico for the Amado Carrillo organization. So <clears throat> during that time, we worked wow. him. We um, we do the investigation. It basically took us, uh, I was there for four and a half years. It took us basically uh, the four years that I was there to actually indict him out of the uh, Southern District of New York. It's probably one of the um, the best districts to actually prosecute all these uh, traffickers. And, yeah. And Amen, um, during the Amen. time, we actually got uh, great um, sources to um, to identify him. And sure enough, may, um, I did the, uh, the grand jury able to indict him. During this whole time, I find out that he has two Lehman Brother uh, accounts, so basically offshore accounts, where he had over twenty-seven million dollars worth of, of course, all illegal proceeds from uh, the Juarez cartel, and uh, <clears throat> and everything that um, the governor did was identified. We um, we. Basically, seized not only his ranches, his homes, his accounts, but as soon as uh, I don't know if you know this, uh, Morgan and Murph, but uh, as a politician, he they have immunity for their whole term while they're there. They can't get prosecuted. They can't get arrested. So um, his term finished um, in um, I believe April of twenty oh one. And sure enough, the very next day, he becomes a fugitive. So it takes us another two years to basically go after him and identify in August. And sure enough, we actually get him arrested and then extradited. And um, it was a... What a shock. So no, so it's like diplomatic immunity, except for local politicians. You can't do squat to them? That's one. What if they kill no, somebody? you still can't prosecute them until they, they get out of office. So that's one of the uh, bennies that the uh, the Mexican uh, politicians have during their time. And they're serving as elected officials. Oh, my God. And Columbia, Paul, you remember this. If you were elected as a, as a congressional representative, you couldn't be charged with a crime down there either. Dang. Well, um... So what what years were you down in um, uh, in the beautiful state of Quintana Roo, which I love to go down to Cancun. We we tried to go until COVID hit. We were going down at least you know twice a year. Uh, just beautiful down there. What what years were you down there? I was there from uh, nineteen ninety nine to two thousand and three. 
So you were there then when um, Guzman, uh, what did you know about El Chapo at that time? Because he escapes uh, out of uh, Guatemala, right, in 2001. Yes, so, <clears throat> I believe he was arrested in uh, 1993. At, uh, he was going through the, uh, the uh, <clears throat> border of Guatemala. He gets extradited into Mexico and is, of course, serving um, – prison time there in um, just outside of uh, Guadalajara. It's called Puente Grande, um, which uh, it's... Which you had another name yes, for it, right? Uh, they basically call it the open door because everybody was walking out the front door of that uh, prison. His <laughs> <laughs> so the big door. And uh, out, of the, uh, out of that prison, um, I was already in... Um, in, in uh, Mexico, Merida, uh, in 2001, we hear that he escapes through a laundry cart out of the uh, prison, out of the maximum security prison. But everybody, all the sources that they talked, he said that he walked out through the front door. So, you know, we knew for a fact that the director of the prison was a was a close associate of the Sinaloa cartel. It was the name of Tomaso Nunez, who became his right-hand man uh, during our chase of Chapo from uh, 2001 to 2014. And he actually became and was indicted, arrested and indicted uh, to the States. He's serving uh, prison time here as well. Were you involved in any of the uh, the first uh, uh, investigation into tracking down uh, El Chapo? At the beginning, yes, I was. I was uh, by dating back to 1993. In 1993, when I was assigned to San Diego, we actually identified and uh, located and discovered uh, his one of his first uh, tunnels here at the the in San Isidro, Otay um, section of our. Um, he had an empty warehouse on the south side. And he had a uh, chili pepper, a jalapeno chili pepper um, warehouse on the north side to call it a business. And sure enough, uh, it was coming out through uh, the tunnel came out through uh, a very small manhole type of um, uh, hole there out of the chili pepper uh, warehouse. And sure enough, we um, we were able to detect on both sides and uh, identify the tunnel and close it down. So it all started for me to uh, the very first... Uh, um, to identify Chapo who he was and how he uh, became became actually the uh, king of uh, of uh, tunnels. He was like the gopher of um, gopher rat that always came up with uh, all these tunnels <laughs> during his whole time. So yes, well, that's because and and tell people what El Chapo actually stands for. It's uh, El Chapo is basically El Chorty, the the shorty guy who's he's short. He's about five six and had that Napoleon type of attitude during this whole time. So he was well-respected as a, as, a, um, as a leader of the Sinaloa cartel. Como se dice tunnel rat in Espanol? Este túnel, uh, túnel, una rata de túnel. túnel? Or El Chapo. That's easier. <laughs> hey, Paul, let's talk about your journey into Mexico. So, um, I mean, you're at McAllen. Do you go anyplace after McAllen? Um, you know, what's your what's your journey like uh, to end up in Mexico? And it might help if you come off mute. <laughs> <laughs> so much of that computer information degree is doing for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not exactly. Uh now, Mexico was still a ways away, but 
what what happened was so I had been in McAllen for I guess as an agent seven and a half years. Back then, it was very hard to get off the border. Really, the only way to to was to you know go internationally and go work you know overseas with DEA. And at the time when I was with DEA, I decided, look, you know, I really like this job. I think I have a lot of valuable experience, and why not go to the center of the universe of you know the drug world? So I put in to go to Bogota, and again, you know, I put in, and it was probably a year later that I, you know, I totally forgot about it, and I, two year, year or two later, I get a call when I'm out on surveillance on the bag phone. You know, remember the bag <laughs> oh, yeah. phones? Those old Motorola bag phones and, with the little antenna that pops yeah, up, you know? Yeah, and... Uh, so I get the call, and they're like, hey, congratulations, you're going to Bogota. I'd never been to Latin America besides Mexico, never been to, obviously, Colombia. And so I get selected, and I remember, you know, arriving down there at the airport and, you know, driving from the airport to the hotel. What year was that? This was in 1996. And, and obviously, and, you just wanted to follow in the footsteps of your hero, Murphy, right? Go ahead. I didn't, you know, about, I didn't know about Murphy at the time. That, well, none of that had come out. Enough, though, real quickly, but when you're going down there, what did you know about Escobar at that time? I mean, obviously, there was a capture, but, you know, in this day and age of social media, everything becomes big. But back then, it was kind of like, was it more of a local story or did it's not as it wasn't a big of a story then as it is now? What what did you know about Escobar by the time you got to in country? No, no. I mean, I mean, obviously, obviously you knew about it. But, you know, the what you knew about it was, you know, the two minute ABC yeah. News stories, you know, and, and maybe a magazine article or something, but nothing Nothing, obviously, like you know now or you have access to now with, you know, everything that's been done with a lot of these stories, especially the public, you know, and all the right. intricacies and, and incredible, you know, uh, incredible work that was done to bring that. And, you know, so you, you re I really didn't know besides... Um, you know, the the regular, I think what, I didn't know much more than the regular citizens, you know, in, in the U.S. As a DEA agent, I didn't know much more than they did about what happened or what, you know, what how things worked down there. And so I get down there and, um, you know, it was an incredible learning experience when you saw, like, actually how, um, I don't know how to explain it, but how kind of, uh, the really good thing about DEA was you could pretty much do whatever you, you know, could think or you could come up with as far as to pursue these targets and pursue drug trafficking. It was very unstructured, but it was also challenging in a way because you really didn't have anyone, you know, kind of there wasn't a lot of institutional knowledge because that changed quickly because people would come there like Murph and, and Javier get all this experience, learn all this, do these incredible things and then leave. Right. And then with, with that goes all the experience and 
you know, a lot of the guys that were in would go to Columbia because of the high profile nature. They would, and their way their careers progressed, they would leave there and get promoted. So sometimes you would have on one one promotion board, you would have six agents get promoted at the same time, and all leave. So when I got down there, there there was a big break. A lot of the people that had been there for several years had left, and there was a lot of new people that came in and really didn't have the the senior people to like you know tell us, hey, what do we do? And everybody was even the supervisors. Everybody was new. Well, my favorite question for anybody who's been in Bogota: Did you go eat here, Montserrat? Yeah, I've been up to Montserrat, yes. Yeah, that's. Uh, I was telling Steve that I, we, were, we were talking to JP about that too, and I said, wait a minute, I still got the tickets from there. And it's like, oh, yeah, I, one of my little collectors. <laughs> what, what a beautiful uh, restaurant to eat overlooks the mountain and everything, and uh, beautiful. Yeah, um, so, and I can't remember, was that, um, when did they rebuild the embassy down there, or build a new one? I, I thought there was a new one. I think when I was down there, it was the newer one in 2000, uh, I think was the newer embassy. Yeah. No, they they had built the, uh, I think it had been open less than a year when I got there. So they probably built it in 95 or early 96 is when it opened. Yeah, that's what I was thinking because they, they're also concerned, right, too, because of, well, that's kind of the Escobar factor, right? And all the explosions going off and the terrorism and everything else, they needed to build a new embassy that was a little bit more secure. Right. That's when they came up, the State Department came up with the Supermax embassy program, of building these really, and obviously this is pre, you know, 9-11, but because of the threats against, you know, some of these facilities, especially in, in South America, and Steve can tell you about the old embassy and just being an office building, you know, that you could pull a truck up two feet from the wall on the main street, um, you know, and then they had obviously the, the bombing of the DOS the DOS office there during Pablo Escobar's days where, you know, it was like Oklahoma City type bombing on steroids that, you know, killed, I think, over 100 people that, you know, they came up with the first two of these type embassies that were built was one in Bogota and one in Lima, Peru. And so, yeah, and uh, I think the the Colombians thought you know, the U.S. was going to come in and build some architectural wonder that, you know, was beautiful. It was that ugly, wasn't it? That ugly gray kind of thing. Walled in compound. Well, it looks like yeah. it looks like a prison. <laughs> I mean, it looks like a, a maximum security prison. Uh, but and so, yeah, it was the it was the new facility. And, um, you know, with all that came with that, the. Uh, it was incredible experiences and working there and the, the cases and where I was fortunate was and where I you know, my, my connections to, to Javier, Pena and Steve. So after I was there probably a year and a half, Javier came back as the uh, assistant regional director. So he's like... Two, we, you know, I work for a, super, a group supervisor, and then Javier came in as the level of supervision above that. And at the time in Bogota, we had three enforcement groups, and so Javier was over all of that. And it was very interesting. You actually worked on an operation together, right? Yeah, we worked on. I mean, I he he was obviously involved in every operation as right. as the the second level supervisor. But yes, I I I got the opportunity to work with Javier 
you know, to see his demeanor, to kind of see, you know, uh, here's this guy from South Texas, you know, that, uh, you know, had been able to come down and do amazing things. And it was all because he thought he could, right? It was all because it was like, well, why can't we do this? And he kind of brought that attitude of, uh, you know, having having been involved in very very aggressive type of you know enforcement things, he he was willing to let you you know push the envelope as far as you know the things that that we could do, and you know that that really carried on throughout my career of working with you know people like him that kind of just expand your horizons of. Uh, what you see as far as uh, supervisors that you, you know, really respect and it helps you as you move up the chain. And when you become a leader or a supervisor, you know, you you bring a lot of the things that you learn to bear, you know, from from the way the really good people do it. So, um, no, I had, had incredible experiences there. Ended up working this this really big case. Uh, where we ended up indicting the top 38 traffickers in Mexico, I mean, in Colombia at the time. And what's interesting Which about that is... Which were they? And this was all... Or they across everything? Well, it was, it was interesting. Yep, because what had happened was the Cali cartel case had just gone down, obviously the Medellin, uh, and the Norte Valle was the up-and-coming cartel. But at that time... It was all a conglomeration of a lot of the traffickers from Medellin, a lot of, you know, from Cali, and then Norte Valle. So you actually had a lot of these big trafficking groups working across, uh, you know, dividing lines and sharing loads and things like that. So it was good because at the time we were able to do some really high-speed intercepts of you know, actual meetings where they were meeting face to face and being able to record them surreptitiously and really see, you know, one, to see the amounts of cocaine that were leaving Colombia because uh, Steve can tell you every year back then the CIA would put out its drug threat report and estimate how much cocaine was being produced in Colombia and was being sent to the U.S. and I think at the time back then it was there was they were it was like forty five tons of coke that was being produced and from this one case we realized hey this one group is moving about thirty tons you know a year just by themselves so we we you know quickly uh, statistics and intelligence were confronted by real life, <laughs> you know, and, and the interagency issues when you're like, look, your guys statistics are no, no, no. We've, we know this because we've been able to, we've grown cocaine plants and we know how much they can produce. And we've, we've extrapolated that mathematically to figure out how much can be grown totally. And so, you know, it, again, you know, people not knowing people all doing this from, from DC and, you know, using satellite imagery, but, just to see the the incredible amounts, but also that was my first from being down in Colombia, we were able to work it all the way into Mexico. And so when Abe was in the Yucatan 
and Abe was working there. We were working the other end of all the fast boats going in and the main trafficker in uh, Cancun at the time, this guy El Metro, who was one of Amado's main lieutenants. All the guys I was working were the guys that were connected with El Metro and with Amato to move all the coke through the fast boats there. A lot, around the Pacific side, they were moving incredible amounts to Guadalajara. And so I became very knowledgeable about the Mexican trafficking groups because they were the main connections. You know, so I kind of expanded my horizons. And then you start realizing that, uh, and, I, and I always compare this to like your Jedi training, you know. Which I have gone through. Steve hasn't, so you, you can't disclose everything, okay? <laughs> <laughs> nerd alert, nerd alert, nerd alert. Uh, but the, you know, you start really seeing the world of, you know, the high-level drug trafficking world is a is a pretty small universe, and it's a it's kind of interesting because you kind of start seeing you know the third-level connections and how it all connects and you know who works with who and why and you know it's all like a continuation of you know uh, a story of how all these people that you think are separate really aren't they're they they have separate cartels now but they all came from the same you know group originally of when drug trafficking started in mexico you know with out of guadalajara with the guadalajara cartel and then in colombia with you know pablo and his crew and you know even going back before then with um you know some of the precursors to to pablo escobar they all started together, and then they fragmented and, you know... Split up from ends. there. Hey, real quick question, Paul, uh, while you're right there, too. Did you, before you and Abe actually worked together, did you actually run into each other? Did you guys, you know, did you guys know each other because of these cross-linked investigations? No. All right. No. Abe, you had no idea no. who this Paul Crane was taking all the credit for the hard work you were doing up there in <laughs> Not Mexico? Yet. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was kind of hard to do that work when you're down at the beach sunning yourself going, I hope maybe I can get a boat with 800 kilos. We'll just drive up on shore and I can make a big bus too. <laughs> uh, we were actually uh, at one point they documented that we were, they were, the Colombians were bringing in up to 50 tons through that route through Cancun. So um, you could just imagine how much dope was going in through the uh, go fast. I mean, the seizures were between two tons to four tons at a time. So it was, it was a lot of dope coming in through uh, Cancun. Well, hey, Abe, uh, put your math hat on. Uh, it's not Merce Strong Suit, but I'm going to ask you to do it. So the CIA, Paul was just saying the CIA was estimating 45 tons. How how off were they in terms of what you thought was really coming out of um, Colombia? Um, how, how often? No, no. How, how wrong were they? They were saying 45 tons was coming out of, uh, you know, Colombia. Um, but just based on what you guys were saying, is that is that 45 ton estimate way off? Is it? In the I, ballpark, or do you think there was a lot more? I think there was a little out? bit more dope coming out of there, especially for Colombia, direct into Cancun. Especially, we had, of course, their first um, into Cancun and uh, Acapulco, the uh, another resort there, where they had the the two biggest um, entry points, water entry points for the. Uh, the traffickers to bring in their go fast vessels, and we had estimated at one point that that it was over over fifty uh, tons that were coming in. So they were bringing in tons of dope during this time. 
Yeah, Morgan, just when that was going on, we actually, our Intel people did a review of just what we could confirm through investigations and seizures. I mean, so this is like direct evidence of, you know, either loads people had cooperated and said they had moved or that it got through or ones that were seized. And just from our knowledge, and it was over 90 tons in that year. And then you got to figure we don't get all of it. So it had to be way up. I mean, it was probably at least two thirds, you know, more than it was up in the, you know, mid hundred ton, you know, 120 to 150 tons. So the CIA's estimation was off by almost an order of magnitude of three. They said 45, but you're closer to, you know, 150 tons or something like that. Maybe an order magnude of four. Yeah. Yeah. That's just 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 Was that CIA or was that state? Was that CIA or was that state? State Department. No, CIA would do the, CIA would do the, the satellite imagery, the you know growing estimate how much is under production and then they would do the math and figure that out through the satellites and you know all this other crazy stuff i remember the first time reading one of those reports and you know it's bs you know and and i'm getting all ticked off and javier's looking at me like you can get pissed if you want you can complain if you want nothing's going to change it doesn't change what we're doing get your ass back to work stop worrying about that silly stuff (laughs) And so what was interesting out of that, because of the discrepancies, DEA started this program where in Colombia, we actually went out and hired a whole bunch of um, cocaine chemists, you know, that put the feelers out and said, hey, we want people that know how to, you know, that have experience making cocaine out in the jungle. And we actually set up a laboratory on one of the military bases and started bringing in the cocaine, and they started processing it, and we realized the estimates of how much could be produced, you know, per kilo of you know coca leaf, was way off and was way short. We the amount of product that was coming from actual production was a lot higher, and then of course the they also start telling us like yeah but we that they harvest three times a year it's not, not one, one crop it's not just one now, crop was this like an undercover every, operation right or, or was this a controlled was this a was this a scientific experiment or was this a uc operation that you were doing with the scientists no this was this was actually scientific that was being done openly i mean obviously the the people that were doing it we weren't fronting them out but it was being done openly and in coordination with the Colombian national police and so it was it was a they they actually started bringing they brought down several of our DEA chemists you know to be involved in for them to understand the process and all of this and, and it actually out of that became a program they realized they could actually do signature on different batches of cocaine. And so they started the signature program where they could actually, when they analyzed the cocaine, they could tell if it was Colombian or Peruvian just based upon the different chemical nature. So it was, it, they were able to really improve, you know, the estimations and the intelligence on that. Plus, that was videotaped, as I remember. And we use that in, uh, I use that in a lot of state and local training classes. No kidding. So, um, 
you know, but it almost makes sense, right? I mean, you, you, if you really want to do it, you got to get the people actually doing the dope. You can't do this ivy, you know, ivory tower estimation thing. It's like put feet on the ground. By the way, though, Steve, though, um, we as we found out, Steve would not have been able to make it. Uh, and actually, I'm trying to find that right now. There it is. Jorge Roca Suarez. Does that name ring a bell with either of you? Abe, you're nodding your head. Does yes, that it does. Um, uh, a Colombian that, uh, of course, had tons of assets here in San Diego, the San Diego Field Division. I was brand new to the San Diego Field Division where uh, <clears throat> one of our supervisors was running that huge case out of the San Diego office. Yes. And who was that supervisor? Michelle Linhart. And who do we just have on the podcast, Steve? Uh, some lady who was a high school mascot at some place up in uh, Minnesota. Did you guys know that she was from Fargo and she was the high school mascot for the White Bear Lake Bears? Go no Bears! Way. Oh, yeah, that's why I was saying because yeah. you, you were talking about because you, you got you, you come out of Bolivia, but you got the pace that goes to Colombia that gets refined in the cocaine, and then you got your transshipment points through Mexico. So, I mean, there's this whole food chain of people that starts from the coca leaf all the way up through distribution you know, into the United States. So let's, let's kind of go ahead. Well, that's that. And Morgan, I think a good point to make on this is why, where this became more difficult in some ways, because, you know, especially during the Medellin cartel, you had all the cocaine was going directly into the U S from Colombia, right? You didn't have the Mexicans weren't involved. So you had, the Colombians would give it to transporters of, you know, other nationalities, Americans, you know, pilots or, you know, Dominicans or take it to Dominican Republic or the Bahamas. And then they would give it back to Colombian cells in the U.S. And so you were you, if you're in Colombia working the Colombians, you're working the whole angle of all the way into the U.S. and the distribution and all of a sudden, all that changed, and all of that knowledge of how they were doing it and the organizations involved went away, and then all of a sudden, it was just, no, we're, we're going to run it all through the Mexicans. And then the Mexicans were going to take it and then deliver it to Colombians in the U.S., and then that didn't last long, and then all the Colombians left the U.S. because they realized, hey, we're all at risk to being indicted because of all the cases being worked out of Colombia. And then it was all just, they were giving it to the Mexicans, and the Mexicans were the rest of the, the chain all the way to Mexican distribution in the U.S. So you had this huge change of knowledge where all of a sudden we really didn't know a lot institutionally because of what had happened, you know, the good work and the great pressure in Colombia totally changed everything. So a lot of this was being developed, you know, now we have all this new ways they're doing it and new organizations involved. And it took a while to like get up to speed on who's who, you know, especially the new people in Mexico and, you know, with the rise of Amado Carrillo and all that. I mean, that just went, I mean, that just zoomed to the moon. I mean, that was... That's exactly right. And then uh, during that whole time, the Mexicans starting, uh, of course, bringing in the cocaine. We probably have the biggest seizure up in L.A. with the 22-ton seizure there with uh, the L.A. division out of Amado Carrillo's warehouse. So <clears throat> with that uh, perspective, I mean, I know that, uh, like you said, it was just a hinge of a call from um, a source 
saying that uh, called an ATF office, saying that there was a, a lot of uh, strange movements out of that warehouse. And sure enough, uh, one of the agents, I think it's uh, Bill Sherman, uh, with other agents out of the team, they went out there and sure enough looked into the warehouse and behold, they've actually um, located and identified almost 22 tons of um, cocaine there. So that I'll be, so I'll belong to Hamaka. Where, where do you, where do you store twenty two tons of evidence securely? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. <laughs> oh, I know in Miami we had a uh, we had a secret warehouse that was armed. Uh, you know, it was obviously protected twenty four seven by off duty police officers making a buttload of off duty pay uh, with some major weaponry. Plus, you know, the, all the alarms and the vaults and all the stuff that went along with that. Oh, so not so secret. All you had to do was go see where's the only warehouse in this whole area that's got armed guards, you know, and heavy heavy machinery, right? <laughs> well, not Miami. <laughs> that's Miami, true. That was, there's a lot of places like that. <laughs> there's a lot of places right. like that. So um, let's start bringing this then to a time to where um, let, let's understand a little bit more context on the ground because we talked about Sinaloa. We talked about the Ariano, uh, Ariano Felix organization. So wh- who were the, by the time you both ended up together at the same office, who were the major players um, in terms of the drug distribution and the routes through, um, you know, Abe, who, who at that time were the major players when you arrived at um, you went from, um, uh, you went. You both ended up in the Guadalajara office together. Or which office was it that you and Paul were at? No, it was Mexico City. At the Mexico City. Oh, Mexico yes. City. I mean, okay, yeah. So by the time you ended up in Mexico City, what was the context on the ground? Because this is going to lead us into this discussion of El Chapo, Sinaloa, you know, his escape, and how you guys got involved. So we had, of course, the picture there. Who was running? Uh, of course, all the drugs into the U.S. was. Um, <clears throat> Uh, Chapo Guzman, his um, successor now, which is the uh, Ismael Mayo Zambada. We had the um, the Beltran Leva organization, and we had, of course, uh, the brothers of 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 um, um, one of the two uh, brothers for. Um, Amal Carrillo's brothers was running the organization too, but the guy that was actually running um, basically all of Mexico was El Chapo. He had not only did he have all the intelligence, but had all the tunnels, had all the transportation set up from uh, from the uh, like we said from the beaches, from the waters into the uh, port of entry through uh, different uh, methods. But um, it was. Chapo and his organization that the Sinaloa cartel. So he basically put a layer between everything else and the United States that anything coming into the United States had to pass through, at least to some extent, pass through Sinaloa, pass through his organization. And did he have a piece of action even going on with the other organizations? Or was he like the boss of bosses? Or was he still fighting it out with some people as well, too, for routes and distribution? Of course, I mean he had basically the uh, the he actually ran the um, the uh, drug um, enterprise there in Mexico, but he did have his uh, challenges there. Of course, against the Ariano Felix organization. Of course, that break between the um, um, <clears throat> uh, the Beltran Labor Brothers when they actually split and they um, they encountered um, they actually 
got together with the Setas uh, or um, DTO, and and he had, uh, but nothing stopped him. I mean, he basically owned all the uh, the border uh, towns where he had uh, Juarez, Tijuana. And uh, basically, all of Texas covered through the ports of entries. He had no issues of working his um, drug empire throughout these um, places, bringing in all the dope all the way not only to L.A., but uh, of course to Texas and Chicago and New York, which is um, where he brought all this dope without any issues. As well as Atlanta, and and when you say DTO, you're talking about drug trafficking organizations, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, because you guys, as again, we got to just break you feds down of this bad habit of talking in acronyms, because otherwise this whole thing would be just a discussion of acronyms. <laughs> hey, um, so who got to Mexico City first, Abe, you or Paul? I did. I got there in uh, 2011. So in 2011, uh, the hunt was still on for Chapo after his escape uh, in 2001, because he'd been out for 13 years now, basically. Were you involved in any of that uh, when you went to Mexico City? Yes. Um, we had a huge run when um, I was the, um, the rack, which is the resident agent in charge out of our Guadalajara office. See, I've got you trained already. You're now discre- you're now defining <laughs> acronyms. You could be taught, Abe. I'm surprised. DEA, man, it's, you know, you're thank good. You, thank you. Keep going. So uh, during that time, uh, <clears throat> I I did a tour there from um, 2003 to 2008, and uh, during that time, of course, we had tons and tons of um, information coming in that uh, Chapel was, of course, in Guadalajara, Sinaloa. We had uh, uh, information that uh, he was bringing in uh, all his cocaine from Colombia into the two ports, into the uh, Colima, uh, Port of Manzanillo port, which is the smallest port, but the biggest container port in uh, all of Mexico. And they used that port, and they used the port of Lázaro Cárdenas, which is in in uh, Michoacán, Michigan. And then they used, of course, the uh, other ports of Veracruz, which is another huge port. But there, we were able to seize uh, <clears throat> tons of chemicals coming in from China, Germany, and other parts, India. We seized all kinds of money that was coming in for the Sinaloa cartel. We seized probably the largest cocaine seizure in the world it was 23.5 tons of um of cocaine coming in from Buenaventura, colombia and and you gotta understand this this is a we it's not an i it's a, a we have some great phenomenal agents assigned to me during that whole time that i was there but that's where history started guadalajara as you guys are aware the guadalajara cartel ran a mock of uh, Basically, it was a uh, federation that started with Miguel Felix, uh, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, Caro Quintero, which we need to talk about too, um, Don yeah. Fonseca, um, another huge trafficker where they actually built this federation and they actually, um, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo is the one that actually distributed the, um, the, the, the uh, traffickers throughout their zones, like the AFO, would go to Tijuana. Uh, the Juarez cartel would go to, of course, uh, Chihuahua. Um, <clears throat> and all of the Sinaloa cartel would be run, of course, of, of the state of Sinaloa and Guadalajara. So during that, that time there in, uh, in Guadalajara, we did chase um, Chapo as much. We arrested one of his sons for he had $35,000 and had a forty-five um, caliber um, weapon there. 
And um, he, within time, he I think he only did like 18 months, and his father was able to uh, take him out of a um, prison assigned there. They dropped the charges. They uh, killed a couple of uh, judges. They killed a couple of prosecutors as well. So there was a lot of challenges um, there. But in 2011, when I got assigned to Mexico City, Paul comes in in um, 2012, and it was strange because I know that people from Colombia want to bring in that Colombian uh, <clears throat> work into Mexico, but it's a different animal. It's a different challenge. It's a different thing. And Paul got into the to the groove to say, hey, we need to start targeting um, Chapo Guzman. Let's see what we have. Let's build an intel group. Let's build a group so we could go after him. So it was, even though it was challenging, but we had the right group, the right um, the right team, team to, to make it work, and I'm, I'm giving them the uh, the props to tell them that the uh, the Mexican Navy, the Special Armed Forces for the Marines there, had a special group that actually targeted a um, the Setas, and they were just phenomenal, and they deserve all the kudos, all the um, pat on the backs. Well, let's. Let's talk about that for a second, because you keep mentioning the Los Zetas. They, they were actually, would you agree that they were the most dangerous cartel in Mexico at that time? Yes. Why? They actually ran a mock, because they had control, basically, like uh, Chapo has, had control of like 20-some states. They had control, basically, of all, basically, all of Mexico throughout. Plus, they uh, <clears throat> it was an armed uh, force. There were former um, military deserted uh, type of individuals that had special training. They had, uh, of course, they were violent. They, they had all the resources. Um, so th- well, you told a story during our pre-call that I think people ought to hear. I mean, how violent were they? You talked about the funeral of a, a Marine in the Mexican Navy and what Los Zetas did at that funeral. Yes, I think uh, Paul. Um, th- was, that, was that your story, Paul? Ocel Cardenas, who had, the head of the Gulf Cartel that was involved with creating the Zetas, his idea was to militarize the cartel in order to take over, you know, territory from Sinaloa and all the other cartels. So that's what really started the spike in violence in Mexico. And the Zetas were so outrageous in the amounts of violence that they were willing to do. And so... It became this long, ongoing battle with the Marines against the Zetas in these military-style operations. And one of them, several of the Marines were killed, and specifically uh, this one young Marine that I forget what state he was from, but wherever they took his body back to be buried, and his family obviously was attending the funeral, and because he had been involved in this operation where I think they had killed one of the local commanders, uh, the Marines had ended up killing one of the local Zeta commanders, they sent a hit team to the funeral and killed the rest of his family members there at, at the funeral. At the same time, this is when you started seeing, you know, this is uh, obviously after 9-11, but you're seeing the Zetas going in to this disco and killing 12 people and chopping their heads off and throwing them on the dance floor. You know, you're seeing things very eerily similar to um, 
you know, what's happening in Afghanistan and Iraq as far as the terrorist type activities, you know, not just not just the regular enforcement activities, but, you know, terrorist type activities of hanging people from bridges, chopping heads off, those type of things. Well, there was uh, there was another instance where uh, they kind of came up with their own Mexican plato plomo. You told us a story. One of you guys told us a story about that, where they... Uh the uh, nephews yes. of the Mexican prosecutor. Uh, on that front, um, <clears throat> I could tell you that uh, we, like during my whole three tours that I did in Mexico, I met a lot of cops. I met a lot of uh, prosecutors. And uh, one of the prosecutors that um, actually knew since back in 1998 was assigned to uh, was assigned to the organized crime unit and um, <clears throat> left the the federal job to go get a state job there and he was the prosecutor or the um, the attorney general for one of the states Aguascalientes and uh, during that time he started targeting the um, ABL which is the um, Arturo Beltran Leva organization and of course uh, he was not only did he try to make right to clean up the city but uh, he hit the wrong houses he hit the wrong people arrested people that uh, belonged to the abl organization which led to uh <clears throat> to some uh, trouble during this whole time they said hey if you don't stop within time if you don't do away with um you um uh, taking care of it we're going to actually send you so within i'm going to say within time they actually killed two of his nephews and to uh, show a little bit more of the um, possibility of things that they're going to do to him, they sent the nephew's heads to his office in uh, in a couple in, in a cooler, one of these coolers that they sell at the Seven uh, Eleven, uh, the foam ones. And sure enough, he received it. And uh, but that didn't stop him because he still became a, not only a good friend, but he kept uh, uh, prosecuting and doing cases with us as well. So. And those and those nephews, did they have cr- any criminal involvement whatsoever? They had zero criminal involvement. Plus, they were just go, they were going to uh, college. They were college kids and had uh, zero involvement with crime. They didn't even know they they weren't aware. So, and before we move on, Morgan, let's let's uh, let's just discuss very quickly what authorities you guys had working and living in Mexico as DEA agents. So, you know, do you have no, diplomatic community? No, uh, as DEA agents all the way up to the um, original, um, the assistant original directors, we didn't have zero, I mean, zero immunity. The only person that assigned to DEA that had immunity was uh, the regional director, which was Paul at that time. So did you have, did you have authority to carry weapons down there to protect yourself and your family? No. No, we had zero immunity for that as well. It was all, always by the blink of an eye. Everything was, uh, of course, everybody knew that uh, we would carry it, but it, we had no official record, no official... Uh, you you had no... Like in Colombia, when, when Steve and JP were down there, they actually got cards. They got, you know, they were licensed carnage. to carry firearms. What you're saying is Mexico, just from a, a cultural or legal standpoint, would not allow you to even have a license to carry a weapon. If you were carrying a weapon, technically it was unauthorized. Correct. That is correct. 
Well, and we've heard those stories too of the soldier. What remember he made a U-turn? I think at the border, he just had ammo in his car, and he's in jail down there for a year trying to negotiate him out. I mean, it was—it's a serious offense for them. It is. It is. Were you, were you guys uh, there alone, or were your families living in Mexico with you? We had—I had my family living the three tours that we did. I had my family and my. Uh, <clears throat> of course, um, we went through some um, good changes there in Mexico, but uh, it was a scary time. So it was some scary times there in Mexico during that time. Now, where did where did you and your family live in Mexico? Were you in a, a walled-in compound? Uh, in Mexico City, we lived in a um, a gated community, which is a huge high-rise there in Mexico City. Um, no complaints about the living style there. We had all the amenities, but um, going back and forth, of course, we always had armored vehicles and traveled about um, six miles from the um, the compound to the U.S. Embassy there, Mexico City. Did your family have bodyguards protecting them? No, we had uh, the only bodyguards was my two little girls that were always looking at the six, making sure that uh, their mom had no tail when they were uh, being followed mom. Oh my God, already teaching your young kids trade craft. Here's how you do, you know, surveillance detection, you know, here's checking your, teaching them even checking your six, you know? It was funny, uh, Morgan, because uh, every time I would tell the girls, "Hey, what's on your six? They would say, "Daddy, it's a white car. It's uh, it was either a, a, a white Jetta with these license plates, and they would read off the, the plate too." So they were well trained. They were wow. well trained during the, wow. the whole time in Mexico. Do you have any close calls? We did. We did. Um, when I was the first assigned to our Medida office in Yucatan, um, I had just finished doing a um, long term. It was a six-month um, undercover, targeting, of course, Chapo. And uh, we had, uh, I was, during that whole time, I was in San Diego, um, had um, some um, calls into a politician who had the routes uh, from Mexico City into Texas to bring in us uh, five tons of cocaine. And sure enough, um, we found out that uh, it was Chapo who was actually supplying the uh, the dope during that time. So I did that six months. We were able to arrest uh, several people, uh, several cops as well in Texas. We um, I get assigned in uh, 1999 to our office there. And within six months that I was there, I get, uh, of course, calls from... Um, from the FBI to say that, hey, El Chapo has sent a couple of uh, people to uh, making sure that, um, see if they could uh, find out who you were and, and if you were assigned to Merida. And with those six months, I was able to identify a vehicle that belonged to the Mexican uh, military, to the um, army, the Mexican army there. And they had, of course, a trigger fish. They had the laptops trying to suck up all our, our cell phone numbers out of our, um, and it, Hey Abe, and real, and uh, we all know what triggerfish is, but let people know what what is triggerfish, and 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 wh- how is that used? A triggerfish is a a device to try to um, gather all the telephone numbers out of the uh, area within a small area. The mobile phones it, it basically to... simulates uh, like a cell tower, and and uh, the things attached to that, so you can suck exactly. in the information. So uh, we were able to identify that, and sure enough, I took it up to to. Um, to management and certain other team, but um, you could still see that uh, they were still following us back and forth. It was a game. It was a game. Um, did I feel threatened? Of course I did, but, uh, I mean, that was part of the game. I didn't want to leave because I was – I went from San Diego where we did some big cases, but I found out that Mexico had probably the biggest – 
cases that we could bring into the U.S. and keep our country a lot safer. And I thought I was doing the right thing. So that fear, I was more, I was more fearing the, uh, my family than anything else. Because I mean, we all have a passion for this job. We all have. We understand that uh, our families is important. But um, I mean, I took the job or responsibility of doing this job, but not my family. And you're you're answering my next question is you know we've just we've just explained to the listeners how violent it is down there, especially when they're chopping heads off, they're hanging bodies off of bridges, they're dismembering people, they're burying them in acids. There's mass graves in Mexico where innocent people are still buried today, and here you guys go down. Uh, you know you're you're Mexican by birth, babe, but you're gringo, uh, and everybody knows who you are down there. And here you're bringing your families in there, and I'm looking at you know when I went to Columbia, we could have our spouses, but we couldn't have children down there. And so that just, you know, I'm sure the answer, the uh, listeners have this same question that I do is what the hell is wrong with you What the hell were you thinking? You that, and in Columbia, <laughs> did you guys have drivers, armed drivers as well, as bodyguards as well? Yes, we did. Oh, no, they had more than that, Abe. They had armed helicopters. They had 30 caliber machine guns with the Colombian army. Uh, they didn't. They oh, they, they're you guys are the little people. They were getting ferried by helicopter. Nobody rode in a car down there, not with Steve. That's right. And, That's right. and you got to understand that uh, Mexico is our backdoor neighbor, a backyard neighbor. Um, they thought that Mexico was going to be okay. We didn't have any issues, but uh, just the way it trickled down, how the uh, violence just grew and grew by the time. Of course, besides cutting the heads, besides putting people in uh, buckets of acid, uh, we had sources being killed every other week. They were able to identify sources. We They were able to die prosecutors. I had some really close uh, friends who were prosecutors that they were killed by, of course, chopped that were killed uh, by the Amado Carrillo organization. And they were friends. I mean, you start identifying all these cops that get killed, and you start thinking, what's going on? What's going on? Well, why is this a uh, <clears throat> huge problem within Mexico? How come they don't protect their own cops, their own law enforcement? But there's dozens and dozens of cops that were killed during my uh, time in Mexico, during the three tours that I was there. Well, not to mention, you know, everybody knows the story about Enrique Camarena, Kiki Camarena, who was kidnapped, tortured, and murdered down there, murdered multiple times because a doctor was standing there bringing him back to life over a three-day torture session. And there's another agent that's not as well-known, but we all know him. He's a good friend of ours, Victor Cortez, who was stationed there in Mexico and was kidnapped and tortured. And luckily, the, the agents had the balls to go in and get him back from the police and save him. He's still alive today. But, you know, knowing all that, and and it's illegal for you to carry a gun. I mean, is this is this politics out of control in Washington that they don't want to recognize the violence in Mexico because they're a neighbor and a trading partner? Or are we just, are, are, is Washington that damn stupid? Which I think we probably all know that question, <laughs> know the answer. No, but what's interesting about, and, and just to highlight this, because again, as you, as Steve, you know, from Colombia and other parts of the world, you forget because it, it becomes, you know, it's your day-to-day -day life. You really don't even think about the security issues as being that abnormal, right? It's like kind of the normal life of what you deal with. But just to highlight, so Abe, when he's in Guadalajara, his kids go to the American school, which is obviously one of the top schools there in Guadalajara, private schools. The main, the main traffickers' kids are going to the same school. Uh, Abe's living in Abe's living in a gated community where a lot of the traffickers live in the gated community because they want the security. 
of the gated community f- to prevent other bad guys from coming in there. And so, you know, it's kind of like the, you know, remember the old cartoon where the sheepdog yeah. and the wolf go in and <laughs> clock in and, you know, they're, it, it becomes kind of like that of, uh, you know, they know what you're doing, you know what they're doing. And, but we're, we're not real police there. You know, we, we still think. Was that kind of considered neutral territory when you were inside the walls there inside the, uh, was that, was that kind of a, was there a DMZ gentleman's agreement that, Hey, look, keep, keep, yeah. Like keep it out. Or was it all fair game? I think it's all fair game. I mean, the, the thing that keeps DEA agents safe in the foreign environment is the Kiki Camarena reaction. I mean, that's what, you know, has kept us safe all over the world for so many years, even though we've lost agents, you know, several agents overseas since then. But it's it's the understanding that if something is done against someone in DEA, that the the reaction against everyone involved and then up the chain to the highest levels of the cartel will be overwhelming and something that they won't be able to control through corruption in Mexico or through their connections. So that's what's really, I think, kept DEA safe. So it's not a gentleman's agreement. It's because there's some there's crazy traffickers down there that will kill anybody. They they we we had intercepts regularly where people would say, hey, that off that's the DEA office. You don't want to mess with them. I'll I'll blow up DEA. I don't care. You know. But from the higher levels, the saner levels, they, you know, tell everybody, hey, don't, you know. These guys understood the price of what would happen to them if they uh, authorized or sanctioned something like that. Right. Let's kind of let's start zeroing in then on um, what you guys got involved with Guzman. But when did you get to Mexico City, Paul? I got selected to go there in September of 2011. And so I started going down there. Uh, you know, on temporary duty assignments, and I re- ended up reporting January of 2012. And that, that was a tough time, too. I mean, obviously, uh, you, you know, you're coming down there in the midst of everything. Um, so what was your role? So uh, we, we uh, there was regional director, assistant regional director. So give people a sense of when you're a regional director, what does that mean? What authority does that have? Where where are you in the food chain? Well, let me, let me start by, let me go back, because this will connect a few things you guys have talked about. So let me tell you, before I was uh, selected to go down there uh, at, to that position, I was one of the, the in Houston. I was in Houston at the Houston Field Division, and I was one of the deputy sacks. We have like it's a big division, so it has the sack and it has two deputy sacks. So how this all loops around is. Javier Pena was my SAC, special agent in charge, at that time when I was in uh, Houston, right? So here I am reunited with, with Javier. And, and I know we're, we've, we've gone. I got to tell you this story, though. This is, the, this is just. Oh, we got to have a good. Is this a JP story? All right, come on. Javier gets selected to take over the Houston field division. His first hour, right? So. He comes in, we're meeting, me and the other deputy sack, Tommy Nahosa, are meeting with Javier. Javier comes in, we're in his big, conf, you know, the, the sack conference room. 
Javier comes in. It's like, Javier, oh, we're so glad to see you. You know, it's going to be great. We know, we both know Javier from way back in the day. And <clears throat> so we're not there an hour talking to Javier about, hey, what's going on? And, you know, kind of he wants to hear, you know, what's going on in the division, the investigations, you know, it, whatever. The secretary, not even, doesn't even knock, opens the door and says, Paul, Paul, you got to come out here and take this phone call. So I don't know what's going on. She's all like nervous, right? And so I go out and I get on the phone and it's one of the ASACs. And he's like, Paul, I don't know what's going on, but we had, we had a group out on doing a controlled delivery. There's been shootings. Now there's car chases. We got, there's been people shot. It's a, it's, you know, it's already on the news. They got the helicopters up or whatever. And he goes, it's still ongoing, right? They're still chasing bad guys and bad guys have, you know, split up all over the city. And so <laughs> I go in and I said, hey, Javier. Welcome to Houston. <laughs> you know, we gotta, I, got, I said, I said, I got to go. I got to go. There's this thing's like spinning out. And he's like, Paul, you know how Javier is? He said, Paul, I'll go with you. Let me go with you. And so we jump in my, my truck and, you know, run lights inside. It's, it's way up on the north side of Houston. So it takes us probably at least 25 or 30 minutes, you know, running code to get up there. We get up there. <clears throat> the, the, it had been a deal where they were doing these controlled deliveries and the, uh, out of the valley, and they had done like four or five with the same uh, informant. And there were these big tanker trucks just packed with marijuana, like 4,000 pounds of marijuana each. Well, the bad guys, other bad guys heard that <clears throat> these shipments were coming up regularly. So this is a group related to the Zetas. They get their own surveillance six cars and decide, hey, let's just steal. We'll just steal this truck. Not knowing that DEA is the one actually bringing the stuff up in a controlled way. So all of our surveillance teams out there, there's like eight surveillance cars, and they see these other cars driving around, obviously on surveillance. And so they're thinking it's another law enforcement agency, right, which is what you would generally think, until all of a sudden all the cars come in and go to take to, to hijack the truck and... The informant, one of the guys, one of the bad guys jumps up on the truck and yanks the door open and the informant like sticks his hands up. And as the guy loses his balance, he just jerks the trigger and shoots the informant right through the head and kills him. And then so all the all of the DEA surveillance people realize, hey, these are bad guys. So they come in and then. There starts this big shootout between all the bad guys in different cars and all the agents. So then, you know, they put out the help call because there's these running gun battles around, you know, all around this truck. And here come cops rolling up. Well, this one Houston, this the, it was a task force unit we had out there. So there was some task force agents, one of the HPD agents. This car comes flying up behind him, and this guy jumps out with a rifle. He thinks it's a bad guy. It's actually an HPD cop. So he turns around and shoots the HPD. I mean, he shoots the sheriff's deputy. Luckily, he just hits him in the leg. But, I mean, he, he was hit bad. 
Then these bad guys, because their cars are all busted up or shot up, the the bad guys that haven't been shot or captured yet, they carjack other cars and then chases proceed from there. So there's car chases going on all throughout Houston, running gun battles. Uh, and we get up there and we pull up and there must, there had to be like 200 policemen, all the chiefs and the sheriffs, the, the chief of police, the sheriff of, you know, several jurisdictions. And I'm like, Hey, Javier, this is going to work out for you. I said, it would have taken us weeks to take you around. We need everybody. They're all going oh, to be right here. And, and, you know, Javier's perspective was so good because, one, Javier had been the sack in Puerto Rico where you talk about, you know, things happening and hard to control. And so Javier gets up there, and his only question was, Paul, do we have an ops plan? <laughs> it's like, yeah, we had an ops plan. He's like, it's all signed and everything. It's like, yeah. He's like, oh, okay, everything's good. But Javier, Javier was so, you know, his obviously with what we everybody knows about his background now and the things that they've gone through, you know, it's the perspective of, you know, he's been involved in some really, you know, uh, challenging things. So that perspective of calm and, you know, that he brings to that. And so I'm there with Javier and I've been there about, Javier's been there about eight months to a year and I get the call of them wanting me to go to Michelle Lenhart, who I guess you just talked to. Michelle Lenhart calls me and she's like, Paul, I'd really like you to consider going and taking over Mexico because Joe Evans, who was there, was leaving. And at that point in my career, I thought, nah, I'm here in Houston. It's good life. You know, I'll, I'll just ride it out. You know, I got like three year, two years till I was turning 50. And, uh, but, you know, I talked it over with my wife and it's like, look, you know, we've been in Bogota. Who's going to be able to say they were, you know, the two, now the two centers of the world go down there and have that experience. And so, you know, I talked to Javier and I'm like, hey, Javier, this is, you know, I don't know what to do about this. Michelle's calling. And I, I told her I'd think about it. And of course, Javier's response was, Paul, do you realize you get this experience? You're going to be so marketable in the private sector. <laughs> he goes, you go down there and do three years and then you'll, you'll have it made. But that's, that's so, true. That's absolutely you know, true. But, yeah. But I went down and luckily I was fortunate. I get down there and... You know, there's there's great people like Abe and others that know Mexico so well, that know the culture and the challenges. And I really was, I, I knew how hard it was to work in Mexico, but it wasn't until I actually went there that I realized compared to, Colum <clears throat> compared to Colombia, where we had really great partners and a lot of, you know, support. And, you know, it was more like a partnership. Here in Mexico, it was incredibly challenging. And the agents, you know, when I found out they didn't have diplomatic immunity, I was shocked. I mean, everybody everybody else in the embassy had it, even to the lowest level, State Department people, the other law enforcement agencies. This was special for DEA that our agents Why? didn't have diplomatic immunity. And it, it goes back to the whole Kiki Camarena DEA running wild in Mexico. They don't tell us what they're doing. They're, if we don't have, so was this a was this a 
punishment? Were they trying to punish you for that? And in other words, like, because I, you know, we were talking, I've been to some of these countries too, but it's like you go into places like Pakistan and Turkey. I was carrying a dip passport. It's like, I can't imagine not going into a place like that, doing what you guys are doing and not exactly. having diplomatic immunity. Right. No, it's, it is. It's it's incredibly shocking. And it was something that was one of the things that had been addressed or tried to be addressed under several administrations down there. And it was something that I tried to address with the ambassador when once I got down there, who who was supportive. But it's, you know, DEA there is so radioactive as far as you know, what they think we're doing or what our capabilities are, or they think they think we're this huge spy agency and that we're, you know, doing and what they don't realize is no, we're just, you know, law enforcement trying to, you know, make it safer and protect citizens of not only our country, but the countries we're in. And, you know, you have the, you know, agents shedding blood and risking their lives in these foreign countries. To help these countries, and uh, but it, Mexico, because of the history, they have these huge sovereignty issues. They still think at some point we're going to invade and take over the rest of Mexico. You know? <laughs> I'll Quintana Roo. I only want to. I, I want to be the king of Cancun. That's it. You can have and Cabo. Cabo. I'll take Cancun, Cabo and, and Isla Mujeres. But yes. nice. Yeah, it, when I got down there and I realized how challenging it was, I, I it was it it set me back a little of like, wow, this is we're gonna have to start, you know, even farther down, you know, down the chain to try and do something. So, Paul, we've established that you're a badass because the first time you bring in a boss, you get him in all sorts of trouble. We thought uh, we thought Javier was a shit magnet, but apparently he is because when he showed up, <laughs> shit hits the fan. Well, so Abe, I got to ask you though: the first time you see Paul down in Mexico City as your new boss, had you ever met him before, or was this the first time? No, I had met him before in a couple other <clears throat> meetings we had in um, McAllen when he was the deputy um, ASAC there or SACA, I should say. I had met him and knew that he had uh, of great ped- pedigree of knowledge and experience, especially... Oh, oh, hold on co- a second here, Abe. He's not your boss anymore. You don't have to give these glowing recommendations. <laughs> I, I don't, but... <laughs> no, he I is. don't, but let me just he tell is. you, working, working in Mexico, we had all kinds of bosses that didn't have the pedigree that uh, Paul brings into the table. And especially from... Uh, from SOD, the uh, Special Operations Division, to um, working the border there in Houston. And I know that he had the Columbia experience as well, but bringing in Colombia to Mexico wasn't going to work. And he had that vision of basically understanding, hey, I'm coming into a new country, uh, a new culture, um, <clears throat> culture things that we have to abide by, and, of course, the issues. And having 10 offices in Mexico... And having the embassy as probably one of the most busiest embassies in the world with all the issues we had because of all the uh, border issues there and uh, and the agents that we have there and all of the alphabet soup that uh, we had there. Paul came in with a, a very good mindset of doing the right things and targeting the right uh, people. I think during his time, uh, the new administration of <clears throat> came in. And they had a, a target list of HVTs, high-value targets of a, 112 people. 
and we went uh, oh, wow. overboard. I think we we hit over almost 200 uh, targets that uh, we were able to do within. I think it's the best, and I'm going to say it uh, now. It was probably the best time to work in Mexico with phenomenal agents, phenomenal people, staff um, from the admin staff all the way up to the ambassadors, all the way up to uh, the consul generals there at the consulates. Just an amazing time, an amazing time we had there. You know, and you mentioned the Special Operations Division, SOD. That's just another example of uh, Paul following the leadership uh, and the mentorship that I was able to provide him because we worked together at SOD. <laughs> oh, and that, still, that still didn't count against you for getting a promotion, Paul? I thought that might have, you know, negatively impacted you. You know, Murph? Oh. Well, I had to, after after Steve left, I had to stay to around like the two damage. more years in order to, because of the, to get, yeah, to get rid of the, to get rid of the tank. So that therapy worked. <laughs> it's funny because uh, Paul, Paul comes in with a huge, huge hair, almost an afro, and look at now, he's almost uh, that, he used to black beard, look at, look at him now, look at me too, look at this. Well, nice except, be- hold on, Mr. Uh, Mr. High and Mighty, Mr. Steve Murphy tainted me, uh, we need to talk to you about a very serious issue here, Paul. It involved SOD and it involved the issue of bribery. Whoa. Did you or did you not offer Agent uh, Murphy three dollars to advise you when it was safe to leave the SOD building because somebody we all know and love, Derek Maltz, was taking <laughs> attendance? <laughs> well, actually, what what was interesting about that was that it was not it, a denial. It's not a denial yet. <laughs> no, it's not a it's not a denial. But it was actually. Even better because it was my boss at the time, who's an incredible guy. You should get him on the show, Jamie Hunt. I mean, talk about the stories. But Jamie was, you know, stone cold New Yorker uh, and just, you know, incredibly respected, very quiet, very, you know, behind the scenes. But he's the one that did it kind of like the New York thing of he put the note on it. He put the $20, he taped it to... uh, Steve screen and said, "Hey, here's twenty dollars to look the other way." Yeah, what twenty dollars? It's three bucks. It's cheapo. And just so you know, Jamie ended up becoming the special agent charge of the New York Field Division, which is one of our biggest divisions anywhere in the world. So, extremely intelligent guy. So, we've established that you would sink to those depths just to avoid uh, responsibility. Come on, you can. The statute limitations <laughs> is over, three Paul. Bucks. You can, I can't you can, believe you, you sold yourself out for three bucks. No, but but Morgan, Morgan, you knowing Derek, right? Steve was the perfect person we could have there because you know how manic <laughs> Derek is, and to have Steve's, you know. Smooth. Hey, everything's all right. Just uh, calm down. You know, <laughs> it was the, the perfect. You know, when the radiac when the reactor started, you know, melting down. You know, <laughs> Steve was like the control rod. You know, to like, okay, we got to turn this thing back. So with him there, it was just it was the best time. So many great people. So many great you know, cases and Steve's demeanor and ability to, cause he was, he was, you know, Derek's, uh, he was like the chief of staff for the whole place. So he was the one that would, you Talk know, Derek and off the help ledge. all of us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> 
Let me tell you, it was a true case of North oh, meets South between me and Derek. And we were joking, but yeah. we all went out to eat lunch over at Uncle Julio's in one Loudon. And I, unfortunately, was in the line of fire. I was directly across from Derek while he was eating. So. <laughs> I'm dodging and deflecting. You know, I, I feel like I'm taking sniper fire. And, you know, where was it uh, when somebody landed? They said, we were under sniper fire, Bosnia or something. Anyway. I, I digress. So hey, but well, let's let's so let's start let's start. What the whole thing we've now led up to is is the hunt for El Chapo. So, but you're in country. El Chapo is still out and about, and in fact, he doesn't get arrested again until February of 2014. But so, how long are you both in country together before uh, El Chapo is arrested? That or that that time in February of 2014. I was there for three years. It's like two years. Okay, so Steve and I had this discussion and. I'm not DEA, so I don't know how sensitive you guys get, but the reason I brought up there are people who take credit for stuff. There was some credit taken for the arrest of El Chapo that I thought was a little uh, unwarranted. So I don't know how deep you guys, well, I don't want to go deep on it, but I don't know if you want to mention it or not, or if you guys want to pass over it. But, um, you know, a lot like, I, I thought, I go back to what you said earlier, Abe, it was a we thing, not a me thing, not an I thing. And unfortunately, sometimes when you get big incidents, somebody wants to make it about them as opposed to the team. And that's what I thought happened on that first arrest. Anybody want to disabuse me of that notion? Well, yeah, uh, no, what I, what I would say is, and as we go through the story, you'll see, this is like a huge saga with, um, you know, hundreds of people involved and it, it it evolved over time and it took a huge amount of coordination and teamwork and it's there was no one person just because somebody happened to be there when he was grabbed that was the the fruition of just so many different pieces and levers and other operations and other things that went on and, you know, luck that uh, th this wasn't, you know, w one, one Jedi going out and blowing up a Death Star. This was, you know, a lot of just incredible sacrifice and work by a bunch of people that, you know, <laughs> led to the to the you know successes so that's where you know it's, it needs to be focused on all of that and not you know one person claiming they did it all or they you know either they did it all while they were down there or somebody did it all while they were in the u.s you know from the u.s while they're in the u.s yeah there's and i think uh, i think you might be talking about the final capture there no Martin, right i was actually talking about the second to the final capture Right. There's the first the first capture when we're there was in right. February of 2014. So that was the one where, um, again, we uh, through through a lot of, um, you know, things lining up and a lot of smart decisions and people knowing Mexico, we were able to, you know, have success. And uh, again, then, you know, the escape. And then the final capture, uh, it, that, you know, that was almost over four years. So, uh, you know, a lot of the people that were involved, there were, there were very few people that were involved in both of them, because, just because of the time frame and how, thing, you know, people were rotating in and out down there. 
So, you know, so I just, I'm going to close off on this point because we get, we had a little off the record discussion. We decided, Hey, we're just going to move forward. But look, uh, suffice it to say, um, it, it, it takes an entire group of people to capture somebody when you have a high value target, like an El Chapo, right? There is no John Wayne coming in, saving the day. It's really, it's teamwork. It's analysts, it's agents, it's other agencies, it's, uh, informants, it's the cooperation, like you said. Even the uh, the the one, it seemed like, and in Abe, you kind of, I think I sensed this earlier from you talking about, but it seemed to me like with the Navy and the Mexican Marines, they were one of the few groups that you could implicitly trust. You know, in other words, they had you had a good working relationship with them. They seemed to be the go-to arm for you guys whenever you were doing anything that required you to have uh, an armed presence, you know, or a, a a force with you. Is that fair? That is correct, and they had <clears throat> all the training <clears throat> to, uh, and the background. They had the intel as well. They had all the equipment to go after all these high-value targets without <clears throat> any um, compromise or corruption in in that sense of that group. Um, it was a <clears throat> a well-known group that actually did basically all the HVTs in Mexico during our time that we were there and um, never compromised one operation during the whole time, never actually uh, burnt a case or had any of our agents um, that were out, boots on the ground, had um, any of them had, were hurt during that whole time of operations. Why are they so different than everybody else? What made, what was it culturally, historically about the Mexican Marines, the Navy that made them that kind of, in a sense, incorruptible? I mean, it, it is... You know, we, we see it happen even in the U.S. You have uh, investigations that go south because of a leak or, you know, there's something that. But to think that in Mexico, where you think it's this hotbed of corruption, which in a lot of areas it is, that you've got this one organization that is just a stalwart, that, you know, just the, they're stand-up people. What made them that way? I believe that the admiral who had the vision, who's been there for over, <clears throat> I mean, young, young, but really smart, had all the, uh, of course, all the intelligence, had this unit built from the ground up and had uh, <clears throat> all the access. We started working with him since 2008 on the Setas and all the way up to the Sinaloa cartel. And you got to remember that the Sinaloa cartel wasn't worked up as <clears throat> much as we did until Paul came around, until we started targeting Chapo as well. So he had, I would say, he had all the uh, right intelligence with all the um, alphabet soup in the embassy. But uh, the major, major intelligence came out of DEA when we actually hunted um, uh, we hunted uh, El Chapo. Hey everyone, this is the end of part one. We'll be bringing you part two on Thursday. We're going to keep this short and sweet as we promised. In the meantime, go visit our new Patreon channel, patreon.com slash game of crimes. We've got a lot of brand new content just for you coming out almost every week. Also visit us at gameofcrimespodcast.com, our website. We'll have videos that will be going with this episode. The only place you can find them will be on our website. So stay tuned, everybody. Part two of this hunt for El Chapo is coming out Thursday. Thank you.